Stravo, Dr. Boris Briglevich was here uh, for a Friday night session, which began with a hearty meal consisting of some chevapi, homemade bread, Indian delicacies, and a few mech juice to wind down after a hard week. Boris is an R&D leader and co-founder at a technology development company called Carbon Value. He has significant insight into the world of hydrogen fuel, renewables, waste-to-value recovery systems, and carbon capture. Boris does a great job of communicating what it is he is actually doing and notes communication as a necessary skill for any up-and-coming scientists. The city of Ulsan is pivoting early to ensure a bright future for its residents, and it's amazing to watch it all develop right in front of our eyes. Mr. Brigilevich... I hope to meet you again soon. Thank you kindly for your precious time. Hey there, money bags. Did you know you could be packing those pockets with more Monwans than ever before? With a new referral program in place, Dr. English is providing monetary incentives if you introduce your friends, family, or coworkers. Send a message to This Korean Life on Facebook or Instagram for more information. Dr. English is an all-in-one online English learning platform. The qualified native speakers can help you start your journey to English fluency today. Enjoy learning from the comfort of your own home. Call 010-4591-1496 for a free sample class. Open your door to endless opportunities. Take your English to the next level today by visiting their website at www.dr-english.com. You are now tuned into This Korean Life with your hosts, Brian and Nate. And welcome back to another episode of This Korean Life, number 64, featuring B-squared, Boris Briglevich, research professor at Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology, the UNIST in Sustainable Process Analysis, and a bunch of other things that we'll get into today. Elon Musk has nightmares about this guy, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. Hvala. 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 That's it. I was close. <laughs> Anyways, we were introduced to you by the, by the wonderful Marta Sheik. And you come highly recommended as an interesting guest who can break down the... Uh, are you sure she was sober? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday morning. But uh, the the first question I want to open up with something popped up on just on um, on YouTube. It was one of the what do you call it? shorts? Mm-hmm. And I swear to God, Elon Musk comes out and he goes, "Hydrogen? Never! It's never going to happen. Just wait five years. Just wait five years. It's not going to happen." I looked at the date on it's 2015, mm-hmm. so seven years ago, and we're still going strong. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Elon Musk mm. uh, as a guy that says something's never going to happen. So uh, I, of course. <laughs> I could mention a couple of things that he promised that never happened, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, let's say Hyperloop, <laughs> yeah. which is still a stupid idea as it was in science fiction of the, I want to say, 19th century. But uh, yeah. So, so Actually, I just, I just saw his, they were criticizing his uh, boring system, the boring tunnel in Las Vegas. Oh, right. And it was supposed uh, to bring you from the convention center from the east side to the west side in one minute or something. A 20-minute walk would be a one-minute shuttle. 
and now it shows all it's it's traffic jam and everything it was like yeah i've seen videos of oh, that so yeah, yeah, yeah. starting from hyperloop uh, now we have a glorified tunnel which yeah. drives overpriced electric cars uh, from A to B in yeah. uh, record, I don't know, what, half an hour? <laughs> I guess it's good if you're on LSD, you know, it has a nice, uh, nice lights. But, uh, yeah, I guess Stranger Things have, got, have gotten funded, so. No, I don't. What's it, do you find, do you think it's, uh, in your field, are you finding it hard? Because you're, you're a researcher and you have a company as well. Do it, uh, is it hard pitching your idea of, of hydrogen and, do you find because of Tesla and all the all the clout they get, does that make your job harder, or uh, does it come down to the science where you just say this is what we do? And well, if you're asking if we are uh, in competition with Tesla, I would say no, and uh, I don't see why why it would be. Mm. Uh, okay, to be fair, uh, I have really nothing against Tesla as a mm. business company or a model, nor against uh, Elon Musk. Mm. Uh, uh, at least not a lot, <laughs> uh, but uh, electric cars and uh, hydrogen cars that we see in Korea, as well as uh, other new and exciting modes of transportation, all have their specific niches in the new uh, renewable energy-powered future. Mm. So, I guess how you look at it, unfortunately or fortunately, one size does not fit all. So. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, electric cars are uh, well and fine for some distances and some particular applications, uh, uh, high urban density areas. Uh, it's a combination of factors. So uh, you combine uh, no emissions uh, with uh, availability of charging stations. Mm. And uh, in terms of hydrogen, uh, well, we live in Korea where there is a living proof that hydrogen cars are indeed viable. Hyundai and if I'm not uh, mistaken. And soon, uh, Ulsan will be, maybe, if not the first, then among the first cities in the world that has a fleet of uh, hydrogen-powered uh, uh, public transport, like well, buses. They, they have it already. Oh, they have it yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. The, well, bus, the, bus the buses have been going for a while, a year maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, I guess I'm behind the loop in <laughs> public transportation. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> Probably not as many as they intend, but yeah, they've been out for a while now. For the sure. one that comes down by my place is yeah. the one of the hydrogen buses. I guess at this point it's not a problem of uh, technology of fuel cells or technology in the vehicle, but uh, actually the charging infrastructure. Right. Mm. But uh, on that front, uh, uh, I've heard, I mean, I've heard that there's been in the news that uh, Hyundai, I believe, has done a big contract with Linda, which is... Uh, yeah, I just read that. Yeah, yeah which is uh, the biggest uh, air products company in the world, mm. or conglomerate. I think it was around two or three billion dollars mm. uh, to make, uh, I think it will be the world's largest hydrogen liquefaction uh, facility yeah. in Ulsan. Oh. So I think that's, a, uh, it's fair to say that Korea is betting heavily on hydrogen. And uh, frankly, I'm not surprised given uh, their uh, specific geopolitical situation. Mm. So uh, they are um, a peninsula, but uh, they're basically uh, uh, locked in terms of uh, land access yeah. to the mainland Asia. So uh, uh, in the future, fossil fuels will be more and more expensive. And I think uh, they're primarily investing, uh, not because of the environment, obviously that's one of the factors, but uh, geopolitical security is yeah. uh, is uh, one of the primary reasons. Now, are, are, they leading, are, are they a leading country in the... Is there any other countries that are that are making steps like this? Well, they're definitely among the leaders. Uh, uh, I would say that uh, uh, countries like China and especially uh, uh, Asian Tigers, they are mm. uh, 
investing heavily and broadly. Mm. And uh, in terms of uh, just know-how and technology, of course, there is the typical Western countries. So there is the EU, Western and otherwise. Uh, there is US. Mm. But uh, in terms of specific investments uh, in some uh, relative uh, uh, relative relations to GDP, mm. I would be surprised if Korea is not in the top three. Definitely five. Very yeah. cool. The first time... <laughs> I knew there was hydrogen cars around, but we had to translate. Roy sent something a couple of years back, and it was the translations for for the plans for the new city, like the new highway that they have to make, and you know the new zoning areas and whatnot for the mm-hmm. city. And we're reading this like, oh my god, this is a city that we live in. It, it's really gonna, it's really gonna take off, man. They're going all in on it. That's yeah, it's, it's exciting. Cool to be, it? Yeah, absolutely. It's cool to be a part of it. Maybe maybe just rewind a little bit and uh, kind of let us know how you ended up here, how you got here. I'm really curious about... Here in your studio? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, it, especially like now you seem like one of the more senior voices in your field, um, pretty accomplished researcher, and now with the company. I just wonder like all the time, how the hell did you get into Ulsan? And, and these like some guys, hey, I just felt my professor said, come from Texas, so I came, and I was like, that must have been a shock from Texas to Ulsan, not to Ulsan, to Yunus. Um, but I'm always curious, like, how the heck these people end up here, and now with Yunus, because Yunus didn't have that much fame or popularity mm. 10 years ago. Mm. But recently, man, they've been putting out some amazing stuff, and they're very well known for, for the, the genealogy guys there, the DNA mapping, the batteries. I mean, they got some really good stuff, and what you guys are doing, so... Yeah, you're uh, right. It's a young how, and ambitious institute. How, how did and man, when I was there, they were like top twenty in the world by 2020 or 2030, or whatever. like never, not a chance. They can't even sort out the parking lot outside. <laughs> but there was a fire in the parking lot every year. There was a big fire in the parking yeah. lot, and I was like, how can they ever be top twenty or thirty? But but now they've got the people and the guys have had five, ten years to build up their their networks, and, and it's really starting. Their research is really getting. Getting noticed globally. I guess fire suppression started yeah. better. As well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the but, but maybe maybe what led you to Korea and and especially now to, I know you were here before you came to Ulsan and uh, maybe what what opportunities has Korea afforded you that maybe you wouldn't have had back home? All right, sure. Uh, uh, for that, let's go a bit back, but uh, I'll try to be brief. So uh, I'm from uh, Zagreb, uh, Croatia, which is. Uh, a uh, relatively small country in Europe, but uh, somewhat popular in Korea, especially as a tourist destination. Yeah. Uh, so if you can't find it on the map, I don't blame you, but uh, <laughs> most people know where Italy is. So just go to the right of that, across the Adriatic, that's Croatia, with a weird uh, uh, with a weird look, as an L. And uh, if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so uh, there I uh, finished uh, uh, bachelor's in chemical engineering uh, with a speciality in environmental engineering. And after which uh, uh, the company I was working for um, simultaneously, they uh, kind of invested in me to uh, uh, go to get my master's uh, abroad. And uh, I was accepted in... Uh, Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, that's uh, UK, and there uh, I finished master's in 2013, I think, 12, 13, so, that, that was that academic sorry, year. You said your company wanted you to go and get a master's? Yeah. In assuming you'd be coming back to work for them? 
Yes, yes. Uh, there is a there is a story behind <laughs> that. So the the company uh, the company was a major IT retailer and uh, uh, in Croatia, and uh, specifically they uh, uh, remanufactured uh, uh, toner cartridges. So that's uh, for laser printers and uh, and for inject printers as well. So they had a they have a main problem, or at that time they have, they had a problem with uh, uh, waste plastics from those toners because, uh, as you might imagine, they are contaminated with uh, old toner powder and especially uh, especially toners imported from China and uh, countries like that they have very little uh, uh, recyclable value. So after maybe one or two cycles, they are completely useless. And you can't really, it's difficult to export them back, even as a resource. So, long story short, they needed a solution to uh, to approach this. So, mm. I went to UK and uh, I finished my master's on the topic of uh, paralysis of waste plastics. And uh, armed with that new knowledge, uh, I repaid them by designing a pilot process for uh, pyrolyzing or thermally decomposing that uh, waste plastics into... Well, something not very valuable, but of bigger value than waste plastics, uh, cool. par- like energy dense pyrolysis soil. After that, uh, I you did that after an undergrad? No, that was after your master's. Yeah, yeah. You learned- oh, wild. Yeah. So you melted like, oh, very simply. You melted the plastic down, and then what was the? It, what, did, it's uh, yeah, it- yeah. It's melting. It melting is part of it, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it's actually molecular decomposition yeah, so yeah. basically what you do is uh, you put it in an airtight uh, vessel mm. and you apply heat and uh, in a very controlled way of mm. uh, heating rate and uh, temperature range yeah, yeah. you can control uh, let's say the how fine or how consistent your end product is okay. in terms of uh, how energy dense is the liquid and how much you get it it's a and then it can be used for anything uh, you cannot. Uh, I wouldn't recommend put it directly in the car. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's for uh, okay, okay. It's for fuel. It's not like yeah. I assumed. Think, think, think of it right. as, as so. Plastics are basically products from crude oil. Yeah. Like uh, it's crude oil with ex- with extra steps, right? Okay, okay. So uh, uh, if you have uh, large amounts of that uh, of that paralysis oil, mm. uh, refinery would be happy to take it off your hands. That's because, a lot of ink cartridges. Yeah, because. Uh, <laughs> Mm. You know, you don't have to uh, desulfurize it. You don't need to remove uh, water content. There's actually cool. a lot of process that goes into refining crude oil, mm. and this is uh, already halfway there. Cool. Let's say, mm. so it has some inherent value. Was there at that point? Was there no other company or no other process already invented, or uh, like w- w- was yours the first, or were you modeling after something you saw in America? No, 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 no. Mine was absolutely not the first. Uh, uh concept uh, was. Okay, I, I don't know exactly, but uh, I would wager in the 70s as well to be thought to uh, uh, to be applied for mixed plastics or, let's say, plastics that uh, are not uh, economically viable to do anything else with. And it's uh, a bit smarter way to do something with them besides, you know, direct uh, incineration. So they just didn't have the foresight to implement that? Uh, well, there's a... There's an entire story behind that, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, at that given time, uh, the company decided that uh, this was a worthy investment because uh, basically they had uh, near to near to free uh, uh, highly educated labor. So, <laughs> yeah. so I think that okay. that was the that was the logic behind that. So after that, I thought uh, with that experience and uh, education, I would uh, have relatively no problem in finding a job back home, and I really did try for. Uh, a year or something after which uh, I got uh, horribly depressed because mm. uh, 
unfortunately it's uh, tough no not so much tough as uh, if you're not politically connected or uh, okay. other uh, really bad uh, cronyism yeah. stuff uh, so basically korea was a uh, uh, targeted jump into the unknown mm. given that i did my masters in the west uh, and everybody else from my field is going either some european country yeah. or us i thought uh, you know, you better go in the other direction. If everybody's going somewhere, I should go somewhere else. And uh, well, the road not taken. Well done. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Korea was one of the three I considered: Korea, China, and Japan. Hmm. And uh, Korea felt uh, uh, somehow good in the middle, in terms of. Uh, That's how I ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> Korea felt somewhere in the middle. Uh, yeah. Plus, uh, I had uh, luckily I had a colleague uh, in uh, Pukyong National University of Busan from undergrads. And uh, uh, one day we accidentally hear each other on uh, Facebook Messenger after after a while. And by the way, what you're doing? Uh, well, nothing much actually. I'm considering what to do next. Like, come on over, come to Busan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, he was looking for some P the PhD students, but he didn't even uh, consider me. So, well, really, well, what are you doing? And then he explained to me, like, okay, I could do that. Oh, and nice. wow, here we are. Yeah, and so with, quite uh, quite lucky. No, not really. I mean, if I... I mean that you were talking with that guy after X amount of years? I mean, otherwise you would just apply directly to all the universities or... Uh, tack, yeah. tack it up to I, fate. I didn't <laughs> even, uh, I didn't even uh, start uh, seriously looking at PhDs because if I did, maybe I would uh, decide for, I don't know, some more prestigious yeah. university yeah. or... I'm not saying Pukyong isn't, it's just uh, not well known in South Korea. Right. This was just, okay, is it paid? Yes. Not really well, but at least I don't have to invest anything seriously in mm. terms of money. Yeah. And experience, too. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. basically, why not? And it, as it turns out, it was a great decision because uh, in less than four years, I managed to finish my PhD. And I learned uh, new skills that I'm still uh, using today, specifically on process simulation, design, and uh, many of the skills I haven't had uh, before. Before, I was a strictly experimentalist, more or less. But... Uh, now let's say I'm back to core chemical engineering. And uh, with that, I guess uh, they found something valuable in me because before I actually got my degree, uh, a professor who was in my uh, uh, defense committee was my current boss, uh, Professor Lim, who... Oh, that, mean, nice. that means you did a good job. Nice. <laughs> that, means said, that means you did a good listen, job. There's, there's this institute in uh, Ulsan, like, okay, never heard of it. I know the IST means it's uh, something good, like yeah. IST. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> he asked me a couple of times before, and uh, after I finished PhD, or close to it, I was seriously considering it. Well, why not try a year? See what happens. Pretty much the same as my PhD. Yeah. Here we are three years <laughs> later. Huh? And uh, yeah, after three years, I managed to get to research professor. And now my professor, my new CEO and me have founded a, a company in collaboration with uh, uh, our research group. And uh, the rest is, uh, well, current history. <laughs> I love I love the story of the, the of someone coming over. The, kind of, kind of unsure, man. unsure where you are, and then just absolutely killing it. Well done, man. Especially like that, not knowing. I mean, when you got here, was was there any major cult? Like most people that are coming, know they're coming, and they they want to come, and they they've signed up. Or like I said, a couple of the guys who just follow their professors from other countries here. But no, when, when you got here, did you know anything about Korea? Did you? 
Absolutely. Actually, the only thing I knew about Korea is Taekwondo because I did it. <laughs> I did it in uh, high school and uh, a bit in university. So, nice. okay. so what, what was it like when you came? Were you, yeah, this is the right spot for me. This is good. I can kind of focus. I, or, or was it, holy shit, where did I land? No, but if you're doing a PhD, you might be pretty stuck in your school. Or did you? But that's have, what I mean. Like, you were, have, were you really yeah. focused? And this is, I don't care what's going on. This is a great place to stay focused and do my. Well, My work? You, you don't have enough money to do pretty much else than, <laughs> than research. So, so it's only a buck. But a I, I mean, I always say like out at, out at Unist, I would hate to do my undergrad there. But to do a master's or a PhD, I think it's a great spot. You're isolated. You, you can focus. You have that time. There's no distractions. Oh, I didn't actually do PhD at Unist. No, no, I know. But to do an undergrad there. Oh, yeah. That, thought, oh, my God. Like, that's the worst place in the world for an undergrad. Yeah, you can right. do your undergrad anywhere and party and have fun. But those poor souls, man. They're undergrads. Research Institute yeah. uh, is not uh, is not a place for undergrads, in my opinion. Even yeah. as good as Unist, uh, it's predominantly research focused. So you'll be very good in this that narrow area that you do. But undergrads should be done in a proper university that gives you like very wide range of uh, background knowledge. Hmm. So hmm. actually, I feel kind of fortunate that I managed to combine educational systems from my home country, the West and the East. Kind of gives me edge for some reason i don't know yeah. <laughs> we'll see I, I feel the same yeah, yeah. i feel like students in unis they don't have as much exposure as other kids mm. in like bigger universities of course yeah, yeah. but of even, course. even just being in a different country i mm. mean i mean the korean i always said but it's one thing we talk about lots on here unis has afforded those kids a lot of opportunities like i remember some of my undergrads second year Saying, I'm going, professor, I can't come to my classes next week. I'm going to Cozumel for a conference. And I'm like, Cozumel? Mexico? Mexico? Like, that's spring break. That's not a conference. What do you, what do you mean? And I was like, like, aren't the conferences in like Beijing and Shanghai and Tokyo? Like, what do you mean you're going to Mexico for three days? Holy shit. And I was like, okay, this is experience. These guys are really going to get some great experience. But in general... You know, they, they don't have that experience coming through the Korean education system. It's very, very one-dimensional, and that's it. So, I mean, anybody coming from a different country with their educational background must be at an advantage when you can combine both and learn the system here. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Uh, so far, it has proven an advantage. I don't know if I can chuck it to educational system, but uh, I must be doing something right, I suppose. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Is it hard or? If you want to speak about your company, I'd like to hear about that. Mm -hmm. But and is it hard to balance company and and your duties at Unist? Like you have some yeah, yeah. component where you're you have to do research and whatnot. Is it hard to balance that with a company? Uh, well, yeah, that's a that's a great mm -hmm. question. Uh, well, it's a new experience for me, so I've. I've kind of used to being from the Balkans and all, uh, to being christened by fire. So uh, <laughs> baptism uh, of fire. I tried to explain that to uh, <laughs> to a lady the other day who just got baptized. Uh -huh. One of my students. I was like, "It's a baptism of fire." She's like, "I don't get it." I'm like, "You're getting baptized. It's like really hard at the beginning. Like you know, you just you're, you're going right into the fire." And she's like, "I don't." They used water on my. I'm like, "All right, just forget about it." <laughs> ah, christening a fire. I like that. But yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's relatively new venture. This is uh, I think fourth uh, fourth or fifth month, but uh, we are uh, uh, we are going forward strongly, and uh, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, I've done more multitasking than uh, I've done so far in my life. That's that's for sure. But uh, uh, it's uh, it's a new skill that you either uh, learn and you're capable of, or you just uh, well drown or 
Yeah. Or burn. Sink or swim. Yeah, 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 depends right. on your metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some of that holy water. Put this shit out, yeah. <laughs> but it must be nice that you're applying your knowledge and your background from research at the university to your company. It's not something totally different. You're not you're not doing something totally out of a field. You're you're working in your field, right? Well, I have to say this is uh, this is absolutely what. Uh, this is basically my dream job so far. So people say, careful what you wish for. I was very careful what I wished for. <laughs> it was this, where uh, you can do actually real life applied science that's going to be applied. And as soon as it is, you're going to see it working. Yeah. It's your responsibility to do it. And at the same time, you have the other leg in uh, top-notch research and uh, actually can publish your findings. So yeah. it's a very... Very difficult balancing act, but uh, so far so good. Just, I think if you're just in the research part, it, it it's not maybe hard to get motivated. But I mean, if you you have your own business, you know, you know, if you do those, if you put that extra effort in, it's not you're that gonna you're crisis. gonna benefit yourself yeah. monetarily, right? That's sure. It. Before before we get more into the company stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you're part of the Spade Laboratory at Unist. That's right. Sustainable Process Analysis Design and Engineering Lab. Oh, well done. <laughs> um, but what I noticed when when you sent me some of those links, I was like, "Holy shit, man! These guys published 36, 26? Uh, 37, 36, twenty six, thirty seven papers last year, and then you said the two years before that another thirty six, thirty seven, and I thought, wow, like just the frequency and and Korea's famous for just publishing garbage, but these are these are top notch there's a lot of everything in korea and, and not just garbage yeah. no, it's definitely okay, distribution okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that, yeah okay but there's a there's high pressure on korean professors to publish regularly oh that's for sure that don't do the research and end up with all these scandals that we talked about a, a few whatever minutes ago mm-hmm. um, so to find or to see the quality and the quantity i was like holy shit what what kind of team are you working in like how do you guys put out that much can you tell us a little bit about the Spade Lab and what it's like? I looked at the people you're working with. They're from all over the world. Yeah, that's true. We can, are... you, can you talk a little bit about your team, how it works, how you can publish so many high-quality papers in such short time? Well, okay. Uh, I know on paper it seems uh, for a short time, but uh, uh, you know a number of these papers have uh, research behind them that spans of you know more than one year. You know, so uh, if you have uh, uh, well-oiled team, so to speak, in a couple of uh, broad areas, uh, then uh, every once in a while you come to a point, okay, we have enough to publish in this uh, this level of uh, this level of quality. We have uh, enough to publish in this other level of quality. And uh, I guess uh, I have to say uh, it's uh, for the big part of very good management uh, of, uh, of our professor. He's... Uh, Really, the opposite of uh, everything I've uh, uh, came to learn about Korean professors in my <laughs> in my years as a doctor student, uh, uh, I really have some stories. If we'll have time for that, <laughs> but we uh, like stories. <laughs> How but, big is the lab? Well, when I got there, uh, that was in 2019. Uh, we were, I think, uh, six or seven, and I was the first foreigner. And oh, six. That's who's responsible for all those papers. No, no, but. Uh, that was their first year at UNIST as well. Okay. So uh, our group just got positioned at uh, UNIST as a, a process design group and uh, all the other works that we are doing, predominantly computational analysis stuff, uh, let's say, 
uh, big picture policy analysis, uh, very big process uh, design assessment, technoeconomical analysis, stuff like that. Not a lot of people at Unist are doing that. If I think we are the only one. And not just, not just Unist. I think there's maybe three, two or three groups in Korea yeah, who, who, who do this, yeah. this specific uh, okay. work. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, 2019 was the first or second year they came to Unist in the first place. I was there on the ground floor, so to speak. Right. And after that year, we just, uh, well, not just, but with hard work, we started uh, growing uh, both in terms of members and papers uh, almost exponentially. So uh, we got uh, more postdocs from uh, various countries, India, Pakistan, Indonesia. I forget. <laughs> right. That's awesome. How, how do you uh, find it working in that environment? Like with, with people from so many different backgrounds and countries and cultures, and is it just like... United Nations in there and everybody's just working to get it and it's a great I mean or, or is are there lots of it's predominantly Korean lab obviously we're in Korea so uh, more than 50% are Korean students and uh, grad students postdocs uh, <clears throat> but in terms of uh, in terms of postdocs major majority of uh, of them is uh, foreign and uh, I think that kind of contributes to the quality aspect yeah. of, uh, of our publishing because uh, research is just one part. And as Marta eloquently put it in her last podcast, uh, you know, your ability to transfer your ideas and uh, line of thinking on the paper in uh, reasonable enough, uh, uh, reasonable enough uh, logic that uh, general public and, uh, and uh, public from that area will understand. That's uh, almost an art form. Mm. And uh, you really need to have a grasp of uh, the English language. Uh, I mean, the academic part of English language. So uh, sure. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, we uh, we get to publish as much and as uh, as quality as we do. Obviously, uh, we are teaching those skills to our Korean colleagues, and I must say there are some real superstars there. Mm. Uh, to sum it up, I think uh, it's good management, uh, very careful choosing of uh, who are, who are we gonna. Put in our team and good uh, incentives for your hard work we're the type of group who uh, that cliche sky is the limit literally it is so i had absolutely no expectations when i started here i just wanted to see how it is to work at a top-notch okay. institute but i must say as right. every single yeah every single year e either in terms of uh, monitor monetary incentive or in terms of your position basically uh, after after research professor, you can either try and become a tenure professor, which we uh, decided. Uh, I mean, I decided against it because, first of all, no way at Unist because uh, we don't have enough political backing for that, unfortunately. But also, uh, being a tenured te professor anywhere basically binds you to that place for the next ten, like, twenty like years, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lifetime almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We decided uh, to do this uh, business venture, which is uh, basically technological uh, venture capital and research. And uh, that's, uh, let's say, my next uh, advancement step. Spe I mean, nice. for us that don't know, I mean, Sora might have a better or some insight, but for us that don't know and, and not tooting your own horn or whatever, but on a global scale, the, the quality and the quantity of papers and research you guys are doing and putting out where where would you say are, are, would you be some of the top in the world or a mid uh, in the middle of the pack kind of thing sure. or where I, I have no idea neither does he i'm mm. sure but where would you say 
Well, enough to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I have no idea as well because uh, <laughs> you kind of uh, don't uh, don't have the time to make a quantitative comparison with other groups uh, because uh, how should I put this? Uh, you would, I suppose, you would actually need to go to every single group who who does similar work to yours. Plus, you need to define which work is similar to yours. Mm. Uh, because there is a lot of overlap, and then go through every single paper they published, where it published. It's a study in, in and of itself. Right. But in, in, so gener- in general, I cannot quantitate it exactly, but uh, I'm fairly sure that we are uh, in, uh, let's say, Q1 okay. of uh, quality of our research. Uh, at because I know the battery. Objectively, even 15% of Q1, I would say. Nice. The battery research there is some of the top in the world. The gene. Uh, gene modeling stuff is some of the top in the world, and they're they're known for those things now. So I'm just curious in general. Yeah, that's uh, let's say if you take impressive. into let's say if you take into account the age of our group, uh, I think we're doing reasonably well, more than reasonably Exceptionally well. Exceptionally well, yeah. Yeah, I think with time uh, we will uh, it will even be definitely in the next five years, uh, maybe we'll be the most sought after group in terms of process design and. Uh, Techno-economical assessments in Korea, at the very least. Fair. I think I wrote down your. F- you were first published in 2010. Is that correct? Oh, <laughs> Ara- around. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that. My my question was just, how has it changed or evolved, or if you look back now and think back to two th- your first paper that you were a part <laughs> of, or your first publishing, do you think, wow, that was. I can't believe that got published or wow, that was amazing work at the time or how, how is the process or how has it changed or evolved over your career 10 or 5 or 10 or 15 years? I know what paper was that. That was uh, <laughs> analytical chemistry and uh, some very uh, specialized computer method for uh, optimization of uh, elution in uh, ionic chromatograph. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I just oh, finished, that, exactly. I just finished a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in, in plain English, it was a specialized tool for analytical technique. Yeah, okay. And uh, uh, how, was the, how was the experience? Well, we were definitely very green. And uh, actually, the colleague that... Uh, Invited you here? That, that told me about Korea. Mm. Uh, with that colleague, I wrote that paper. <laughs> ah, nice. That was kind of a fate or something. But uh, let's say we were very green and... Uh, you know, when uh, our professor told us, oh, there's a possibility to publish a paper, we were like, yes, of course. But that, that means actually hard work. Never mind, you know. <laughs> yeah. Then we actually realized how much work that is. But okay, no quitting now. So it was definitely a great experience. And uh, uh, Got your feet wet. Yeah. I think we got a Dean's Award for that. Nice. Wow. But yeah, whatever. That's uh, just bachelor stuff. But yeah, it was the first index paper, so... Yeah, it's fond memories, let's say. Nice. All right. Let's get, uh, I think it was, I'll go 2004, maybe. I went one day, we got, uh, me and my buddy jumped in a car from Niagara, drove down to the Toronto car show in like the, the what is it, the International Car Show? Car Expo. The Car Expo, that's what it was. And do the, the, the center of attention was the hydrogen car. Oh. And it was just really? the. 2004, huh? Oh. Okay. Holy shit. But it was like one of those future, right, right, right. And it was just the like the the base of the car. There was no thing on it. Like in the future, you're gonna have the hydrogen cell, blah blah blah. I remember looking at this and 
pretty stoned. Like, how the fuck is it going to be? <laughs> how are they going to put hydrogen in that? I don't even know. Is that like a gas? What is it? You know, how are they going to? How are they going to do that? And it's it's wild to see o- over the past. You know, twenty or fifteen, twenty years. You <laughs> imagine, imagine our kids thinking about seeing something on Mars. I mean, they don't have any chance to get stoned here, but mm. imagine them thinking about Mars, and then in twenty years, there's guys on Mars. Like, holy shit! But it's it, it's wild. Just as you know, you hear little pieces of like, oh, hydrogen, hydrogen, and now it's becoming more. You know, fuck, you got a hydrogen car. Living, living here, yeah, like it's huh. it's part of my life, and you know, the, we can talk about it as we go along but yeah the charging stations and stuff and mm. if my wife goes for gas and comes back an hour later I'm like, what the hell's going on well there were six cars there was only eight stations in the city so it's but but it lasts for two times as long and anyways but mm-hmm. yeah it's part of everyday life now so just um i don't know i was gonna go with that still storm from 2004 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well think, done sir i think, I think yeah. we, go, we go on his list here because he set this up so, okay. that it, so that it flows. Tell, tell us, you told us these ones here. Tell us about the benefits and challenges of increasing generation capacity of renewables. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So in, 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 in simple English for listeners, yeah, yeah, not, of course. not the technical stuff. You are aware that uh, the latest uh, uh, hot words uh, in, uh, in general are uh, climate change and uh, decarbonization, right? And decarbonization is one of the approaches to, uh, well, reduce or uh, hopefully stop climate change, but uh, I don't think that's uh, realistic. And uh, again, one of the biggest parts of that is electrification of everything that is absolutely possible to electrify. Mm -hmm. I'm not not just talking about cars here, I'm talking about uh, everyday things that we use gas for, for example, so heating, cooking, and I'm talking about big industries. Anything that uses any kind of high temperature, uh, if you can electrify it, that would be good on a way to decarbonization. Why? Because especially countries like Korea are investing, and I mean heavily investing, in uh, their renewable electricity generation capacities. Specifically, uh, in Korea's uh, 2030 plan, uh, they plan to increase from, uh, from 5 gigawatts currently that they have installed, that's combined wind and solar, uh, wind and solar power, to about 51 gigawatts by by 2000 tenfold. tenfold to 2030 oh. how realistic how realistic is that i don't know but uh, there's they, one thing i've learned in korea yeah but given anything's possible dude they oh. built that f1 track three days before they, <laughs> before they do it but <laughs> before, yeah in korea yeah, you you said it well given their historical historical trend from 2012 to 2019 mm. and if you take uh, if you take that trend that's you know, it's going to be 110 gigawatts but they are targeting for 51 so i think it's really reasonable now, uh, the thing about that is uh, it's great to have uh, that much uh, uh, generating capacity because that means uh, you have really a lot of uh, renewable electricity. Uh, the problem with that is <laughs> now, uh, which uh, I don't know, some people kind of underestimate, especially uh, uh, cheering for renewables, and I'm definitely one of them, but you know, carefully and objectively. So you need to understand how electricity is uh, generated uh, and uh, how is it managed so that uh, we can be here in this nice studio, all of our electronic equipment working, mm. lights in, I don't know, on a Friday evening at, well, what time is it? 8.23. Yeah. So <clears throat> with uh, electricity, in layman's terms, you can, uh, uh, it's a on-demand live system. 
okay so uh, it must constantly flow like the dune the spice must flow right mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so, watch that last week yeah, 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 yeah. it's great nice. so uh, uh, think about it as a uh, as spice pipeline of yeah <laughs> besides spice like pipelines and water right yeah so uh, in order to have water uh, on demand you must always have pressure in the pipes yeah so the voltage in our electricity grids basically pressure in the pipes and uh, the further you want to uh, transport that water the higher pressure in the pipes you must have or in case of electricity that's voltage right mm -hmm. so there is entire infrastructure uh, that's required to get electricity from where it's produced and it can be very far away to where it's to where it's consumed unfortunately uh, renewables can only be installed there where there is the biggest probability of wind mm. and uh, where there is uh, the most insulation or the amount of sun given. <clears throat> now, taking into account that even if you have all the infrastructure, like people say, wind is not always blowing, sun is not always shining, then mm. what? And obviously you can't have blackouts in a country that is heavily industrialized. Mm. So, uh, other sources of electricity uh, need to be invested as well. Mm. In terms of Korea, that's uh, uh, coal, nuclear, and uh, natural gas. Now, uh, even in that, there is a bit more detail. So, uh, broadly speaking, you divide your traditional electricity sources to base load and peaking load. What that means is uh, like big power plants such as nuclear, such as coal, are core thermal power plants because they basically heat up water, spin steam turbines, and they provide consistent load. And uh, they relatively cannot be put online on a moment's notice. Mm. They have to be put online five, six hours, ten hours, and mm -hmm. same way for a shutdown, especially nuclear. Yeah, yeah. Usually you turn it on and you don't turn it off until the fuel is spent. So uh, these other ones, the the natural gas ones are so-called peaking power plants mm. and their specific purpose is to ramp up very quickly mm. to meet the demands to meet the demand of uh, one particular moment mm. now when you put very large amount of renewables into the mix uh, then you need to have a very smart control systems uh, for that access uh, electricity mm. so in a badly controlled electricity grid too much renewables can actually be a bad thing because uh, to go back to the analogy of uh, water pipes if you put uh, too much water in a too much pressure, or too much pressure yeah. in a pipe with a fixed diameter then the pipe bursts mm. well similar thing happens with uh, electricity grids they either overload or you just uh, waste all the potential generation capacity mm. so so there's there's always going to be a need fully i mean going forward 50 whatever years in the future you'll always need another source of power yes uh, you'll always need a source of power that can go on on moment's notice mm. or that can generate constantly mm. but controllably mm. renewables are definitely a part of that mix wouldn't that just be a matter of installing like more batteries that could capture the the energy that's being produced uh well First, first question: Which batteries? And, uh, yeah. and second question: How yeah, much? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like we said in the beginning, one size really doesn't fit all. Yeah. And uh, if you're talking about the cheapest solution, that would be lead-acid batteries, like we have in our cars, mm. but they are extremely heavy and but reliable. Mm. 
On the other hand, uh, there is lithium-ion batteries, especially uh, especially lithium-ion batteries from uh, used cars that uh, are not good enough for cars anymore, but mm. uh, they are more than good enough for second life as energy storage devices. Yeah. Even with all the batteries produced in the world, lithium-ion or uh, lead acid or any other type of commercially available battery, mm. Uh, without the exact numbers, they are just a drop in a bucket of uh, how much energy, electrical energy, you really need to store. Mm. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, it's uh, unfortunately not uh, technologically viable. So the best large-scale battery currently is uh, also the oldest one. It's gravity. So yeah. I'm talking about reversible hydro. The problem with that is it's uh, you yeah. know high investment and you know it's uh, geography specific. You mm. need to <laughs> have it readily available. My so, my hometown's Niagara Falls. Ah, Bam, shout out. Speaking. <laughs> but that's just hydro. It's not reversible hydro. What's a reversible hydro? A reversible reversible is that like hydro. An upside down waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's two. It's two big buckets, and uh, you have upper bucket and lower bucket. But buckets are lakes with hectoliters of water. Oh, so uh, you so use excess energy to pump. When water there is uh, there is also yeah. hydroelectric uh, generator. Yeah. So when you when you have high energy demand, you Push, uh, you let water go from the upper bucket to the lower one. And when there is, for example, excess uh, renewable energy, mm. you use it to pump water back up. Ah. That's reversible hydro. Ah. Essentially, it's we need that. Yeah. Bring that back to. Essentially, to it's a huge gravi gravity battery. Ah, so, so the like you said, the, the if the pipe had too much, or your analogy was if the pipe had too much pressure, it's going to burst. Yeah. They would use that excess energy to blow the water back up to the ah. energy. Yeah, the problem with that is obviously it's geography specific. Yeah, you yeah. need to have the space to do it. Plus, there is environmental concerns of mm. building artificial lakes. So it's a great solution, but it's Unless not for everywhere and everybody. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Build whatever you want. <laughs> Take out 10 million people. No problem. Get your house out of here tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. three gorgeous them. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that was gorgeous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> question. I think I remember when I was working at Eunice that one of my projects was on, on future energy or whatever. And mm -hmm. uh, I seem to remember that Korea was not geographically well positioned for both solar and wind. But now I see the turbines are popping up more and more and, and more places, and now I'm starting to wonder. And when, when you talk about these... It, what it year really, was that? I finished there 2015, maybe. Oh. But but also, there's a big push to end or close the nuclear power plants here. They don't have enough energy. So <laughs> remember, that I think in a couple summers ago, there was rolling blackouts. And they said, don't use... And I mean, in Canada, it's not much different. Like, there's peak time, right? Like well, you Canada, get charged like if you if you wash your laundry or use the water or the the whatever at these times, mm -hmm. it costs double yeah, than yeah. if you use it at non-peak yeah. times. But yeah, yeah, in, in Korea, there was maybe three four years ago um, when they had problems with some of the nuclear mm -hmm. plants because they got falsely certified using fake Chinese parts. Um, they, got the they had info the, on all those. Eh? Well, all our hockey guys work at the nuclear plants. Jesus. Oh, Christ. so okay. mm -hmm. so they tell us about all these problems, and it was national news because they had to shut down three plants, three power plants, <laughs> because they got found that the the audits were all falsified, and there was a Canadian company that was involved in doing the maintenance on them. So that that's and one of the guys on my team was we used to we did all the English Chuck uh, Rivers. So wow. Okay. We did all the. Uh, <laughs> uh, what well, I'll tell the story but, after. But so. There's a big push here to get rid of nuclear, especially after Fukushima. Mm. But they just can't because there's no, there's not enough energy here. 
And those power plants should have been, I believe, the the Goryeo or the the what's the ones in Gyeongju? Warsong, the Warsong mm-hmm. or the the Goryeo ones. They were supposed to be shut down three, four, five years ago. Gordy. And they're still they're still going because they haven't figured out a way to replace that. They that refurbished. Energy. They refurbished the the one part in there when the Canadian companies there, but. But so in your in your circle, mm-hmm. I mean, is Korea ideal for wind and solar, um, or? Well, it's a it's a good question, but uh, you need to put it into perspective compared to what. Is it uh, ideal for solar compared to Australia? No, probably not. Is no, it? No, in terms of replacing nuclear or whatever, or getting cleaner, replacing the old fossil fuels with cleaner energy. I think we can safely say that completely uh, complete renewables just. Uh, photovoltaics and wind will never be able to replace, right. uh, like I said before, on-demand uh, uh, power generation. Now, mm-hmm. whatever that was, mm. nuclear, fossil, sure. whatever, whatever else, you just need to have it. Or, or okay, so theoreti- what, what? theoretically, it would be possible if you had uh, generation capacity far exceeding your mm. demand. So even in the most minimum worst-case scenario, you don't have blackouts, but that would be. What, what not per- viable. <laughs> what, what would you say is the percent that could be replaced by, uh, up to what percent? Up twenty percent could be replaced by renewables. Thirty percent. Mm, that's uh, that's also a uh, uh, multi-layered. Uh, oh, okay. It's a question that has a multi-layered answer. And mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Korea, let like, like yeah. let me give you a number. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty wind and solar energy sources generate three point eight percent. That's not much in Korea. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's not much at all. The lowest among all OECD members. The government aims to increase the renewables to twenty percent by twenty thirty, and forty two percent by twenty thirty four. So Possible? Uh, I guess that. Well, like I said before, that was that uh, fifty one gigawatts, if I, my memory serves correctly. Okay. So yeah, that I mean, makes that, sense. That's a drastic jump. I mean, forty two percent would be huge. It would be, but uh, as the time goes on, uh, the capex for that or the purchase cost for both technologies goes down and down so uh, it's not it's not completely inconceivable especially when you when you have resources of a government to give such incentives and you said the the fossil fuels price will go up right so in the end it'll probably even out or at some point you have to many people have tried to predict what will happen with prices of fossil fuels but uh uh not to sound like a conspiracy nut, but uh, it's a it's a rigged game. Like uh, there was a very nice study in uh, I forget which journal. It was it was a good one, like mm. nature level. Uh, the authors tried to estimate or calculate how much uh, what is the true cost of fossil fuels when you remove all the subsidies in all the world combined. Mm. Every single country has certain percentage of their GDP as direct or indirect subsidies for production of fossil fuels. Mm. So an actual price of gasoline or diesel or any kind of fossil derivative is actually really much higher so yeah. so when they say uh, it's really ironic when uh, fossil fuel lobby say well this this will never be as uh, competitive as uh, gasoline well yes yeah, <laughs> i <will>. agree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for the wrong reason so uh, long story short it's uh, very difficult to predict what will happen with fossil fuel prices if you are we talking realistically or are we talking with subsidies? <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we got thirty. I think we got half price. We got thirty-five thousand dollars off the the cost of the car. 
And I remember I told you the cost of the car, and you went, holy shit. <laughs> and he's like seventy five or seventy two or seventy five thousand dollars for that Nexo. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they but the government had subsidies for X amount of cars that were gonna be fifty percent off and yeah, it was thirty six, thirty seven thousand dollars off. And that wow, that's a good deal. And I know we were looking at uh, the Tesla or a couple of the other Hyundai and Kia models, but what happened was all the Koreans went out and bought the, the Teslas, mm-hmm. and nobody was buying the local ones. And the government said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> we we designated like ten billion dollars for subsidies towards you know renewable energy cars." But everyone's buying Tesla. Like we're trying to promote our own cars here, so they they canceled the Teslas, and that was it. No more Teslas. And now you start seeing a lot more Hyundai and Kias on the road. How's your but, your experience so far driving the the Nexo? In terms of a car, it's fantastic. It's awesome. In in terms of maintenance or, you or filling you up, you or... wouldn't even notice. I've never filled it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been to the station twice. I got out of the car once, and my wife was like, "Why are you getting out of the car?" And I was like, "Well." I saw some videos that they can explode or something. I just don't want to be in here if it explodes. But that's the compression of it and stuff. And I, I, I watched before we bought it. I, I watched and you do it through a hose. It's it's like a gas station. It's like a regular gas station. He's going to pump it up with a hose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, not really a hose. It's a. But there's two like propane tanks, like your barbecue at home in Canada. You get the propane tanks. Oh my god. So there's two hydrogen tanks. Yeah. In in the undercarriage. Okay. So the the concern before these came to market was that are they combustible hydrogen is very combustible mm. and what's the chance of these so and i want and you know like once we were filling it up and you hear some crackles or something and i was like holy shit man is, that, is it coming what's that um so there i think are if some, that blew up but... there are some eerie or, or weird sounds sometimes but when you hear no. the same crackle when you're filling uh, butane tanks propane butane tanks. right so but now Jeez. i mean listen they're not putting that car mass producing that car to send it out to have one explode. I mean, they've done a billion tests on them, mm. and and that's why they're out there. So I've seen the video where they puncture it with a high power rifle. See what happens. Or, no, what happens? It doesn't explode. <laughs> oh really? Okay, okay. No. It, that makes me it, feel better. It, it, has, <laughs> it has so much pressure that it's basically very focused. Uh, uh, yeah, very focused release in that point. They even set it on fire. It doesn't explode. It's just flame in one direction huh. so, so that's like a blue angel in that, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, in, in those terms like if you drove it or had to fill it out you you wouldn't notice anything except at the filling station there's a there's an engineer that actually fills it mm-hmm. you don't go and do it it's not the cell fill you don't go and do it yourself there's a technician that actually does it how many kilograms does your car hold of hydrogen no idea. he would know uh okay good question I, I don't know the actual statistics of an exo but uh, i would say five uh, kilograms per tank yeah and Nexo, I think, has two tanks. And that'll yeah. that'll drive you. Uh, how how long do you drive on that? It takes. Right now, the new stations in Ulsan take like less than ten minutes to fill. Wow! And she can go like eight hundred kilometers. Whoa! Jesus! So, yeah. Well done. So that's city driving or highway driving? City. I mean, going anywhere right. else? Yeah. Does it really matter with electric well, car? I don't. I don't know where you're going on the highway, but you better make sure they have stations. Ulsan, <laughs> Ulsan, because it's the hydrogen city, has I think eight or ten stations right now. Mm-hmm. But I think in all of Seoul, there's only three, right or four. Right. So fair enough. If we're gonna drive it to Seoul, you better make sure we know where those stations are. Yeah, yeah. Or you know how sure. much you got left. So, so if if there is a push by the by the government to install these uh, the filling stations, which I think are extremely expensive, no. 
I heard it was like two, or I, I was watching something they said like two million dollars for uh, to install one of the stations. It depends who you ask. Mm. Uh, actually, we are also assessing prices of uh, hydrogen filling stations depending on which technology you want to use to mm. actually uh, release hydrogen on site. Yeah. But uh, actually, uh, w- when you were talking about, if I may, yeah, yeah absolutely. Quickly, when you're talking about uh, this government policy, yeah, yeah, they can be like really great tools if they are implemented uh, smartly, <laughs> and uh, ju- and they can be disastrous if implemented the wrong way. So, uh, so because of that, uh, we we also research uh, also government policies pertaining to some push in push of technology in certain direction so recently okay not recently this was a research since 2019 but uh, it's under review now but basically it's policy analysis of uh, uh, korean government to produce x amount of uh, green hydrogen by 2030 and specifically i think the number was uh, 9.1 million tons mm. So, uh, okay, there's no frame of reference. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, Phillips, nine, uh, a lot nine of million of Nate's cars. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you think that for a typical hydrogen car, you need five to 10 kilograms for 800 kilometers. So, if you make a simple division, that's a lot of cars. Yeah. And, but that's not all of the hydrogen produced. That's just green hydrogen. Mm. And uh, when we're going to definitions, green hydrogen is simply the one produced from renewable power, specifically. Oh splitting of water using renewable electricity. Okay. Now, the question was for us to answer, mm. uh, is this, okay, this is a government policy now, is this physically possible from the technology that will presumably be in operation by 2030? I was talking about before capacity of wind and power. Mm. So that's a complicated question to answer, but we gave it our best shot and uh, it was pretty reasonable. So first you need to assess, uh, okay, in a given average day you know what is the profiles of wind across the entire country what is the insulation and so uh, you need to assess in an average day uh, what will be the generating capacity of renewables and combine that with uh, uh, consumption of uh, power profile during Mm. 24 hours plus all other generating capacities that's a lot of numbers so so base speaking plans and all in real time i mean during one day plus taking into account the variability of uh, of uh, uh, renewable energy so it can be 10 gigawatts but also plus minus a couple of standard deviations it can also be 20 it can be yeah so taking that into account uh, uh, we ask our we ask ourselves the question okay if we set up if we set up capacity to produce nine million tons of green hydrogen a year mm. okay we need this size of electrolyzers with this, this size of compressors everything required to produce that amount mm. now the question is how realistic is it that all the electricity will be from renewables take given what i just said before. yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, unsurprisingly uh, no it's impossible mm. and if it's not green how much is it not green so uh, we're talking about the amount of time per year that hydrogen is produced from uh, uh, from renewables and how much uh, it's produced from the rest of electricity grid, yeah, yeah. which comprises of nuclear coal yeah and whatever korea will have in 2013. Mm. so studies like this really quantitatively show the decision makers like okay this is a great idea but realistically with the other plans you've made uh, mm. this is how much uh, you can produce hydrogen and guarantee it's really green hydrogen. Mm. I mean, 
to be fair, you can produce hydrogen electrolytically, electrolytically by that amount, mm. but uh, it will not be green. Solar, capturing solar power and putting it into a battery, and electrolysis putting it into, uh, changing it into hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading there that it's uh, only half the efficiency. Mm. So is, is it really, uh, when it's pitched in mainstream media, and I mean things that, Mm-hmm. That I'm that I'm exposed to mostly. You get the the idea that green hydrogen is like just taking a, the answer. Yeah, the answer. Like you're just like grabbing shit out of the air and the, it, it take <laughs> you know like you got some magic machine <laughs> that just goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, how green is it really? Like if it, if well, which it, one did, did you read? Did you read that uh, batteries are more efficient in terms of? Uh, or just converting solar, solar taking energy from from the sun, putting it into a battery is. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So but, why uh, why isn't solar or what's the what's the argument for uh, electrolysis? Because hmm. unfortunately, there are multiple factors to consider, mm. and uh, it's never yeah, easy. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, the answer is yeah. again that uh, one technology, one size doesn't fit mm. all. No matter what, what the girls tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the batteries, yes, uh, they store electricity more efficiently. However, mm. they also uh, degrade more fastly in terms of uh, the lifespan. And uh, the prime argument, uh, well, difficult to say against or for batteries, mm. but uh, the prime argument uh, that hydrogen has over batteries is energy density. Mm. Yes, you con- you convert electricity less efficiently, mm. but if they're both free... Uh, you okay? Let's say you take hundred units of energy produced by the sun, right? Yep. And uh, with battery, let's say these aren't real numbers. Uh, from the top of my head, uh, seventy units of that energy will be stored in battery uh, as uh, electrical energy storage, yeah, yeah. or forty-five or fifty units of energy will be stored. Solar in is like twenty, I guess. No, no, no. But I mean, uh, yes, sun to to electricity in mm. solar is 20, but then that electricity mm. is 70% to mm. lithium-ion batteries. Okay. Mm. okay. 70% of the 20 that's taken mm-hmm. from the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, okay. And in hydrogen is, uh, like you like you well said, it's yeah. uh, it's lower than that. Yeah. I don't know exactly. There are different, there are different calculations. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, but uh, the thing about hydrogen is that it's extremely energy dense, actually, the densest uh, the densest medium in the world in terms of energy storage mm-hmm. when you think about it comparing it with uh, everything we have that combusts or reacts with oxygen to mm. produce power hydrogen is uh, 120 megajoules per kilogram which for reference gasoline is about 40 oh wow yeah huh. again uh, the wrong question is uh, which one is uh, better because it's more efficient the right question is uh, for what do you use it for mm. So, uh, and what are we going to use that store energy for? Yeah. Like electricity in batteries has a very specific utilization, whereas mm-hmm. hydrogen doesn't have to be used only for uh, uh, production of electricity okay. through reverse reaction. Yeah. Industries use hydrogen. Uh, countless uh, production processes in chemical industry, uh, uh, pharmaceutical, steel making, mm. uh, decarbonized steel making, for example. And uh, yeah. my point being, there is uh, uh, much more uses for... Uh, like very pure hydrogen than just uh, production of and storage of power. Yeah, cool. that's my point. So it's a multi-layered answer depending on your application. Yeah, if you can't get the green energy, are you allowed to use the other 
what was it, blue and what were the other colors? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Blue, blue hydrogen and, and gray hydrogen. Is that acceptable? I or mean, like um, not not in, uh, <laughs> multi-layered? Of course. No, of course. I mean, look, uh, if there is a demand, uh, uh, somebody will supply it. Mm. And uh, I was just wondering if, like, if there's policy against burning coal to get hydrogen or uh, well, in Korea mm. at least, uh, not a lot of hydrogen is produced uh, from coal, but uh, mm. predominantly from natural gas. Mm. More specifically. The process is called steam reforming of natural gas, mm. where it, quite simply you take uh, natural gas, which is predominantly methane, mm. that's one carbon for hydrogens, mm. that's your hydrogen carrier, so to speak, yeah. and you take uh, uh, water, turn it into steam on high pressure and certain catalysts, and voila, you have syngas, which is pure hydrogen carbon monoxide. Then you separate it through usually some absorption process, and you have pure hydrogen. Mm. That's the standard practice that's been utilized for ever as long as it's yeah, yeah, chemical yeah. industry right yeah. uh, and that's uh, that's called in the new classification uh, gray hydrogen because after you separate the hydrogen you still have a lot of carbon because you started with fossil fuel which yeah, is yeah. natural gas and that carbon goes into the atmosphere so for every kilogram of hydrogen this is how much carbon you emit directly mm. not to mention indirectly by actually taking out uh, the natural gas from the ground. So mm. that's called like life cycle assessment when you consider all the stages uh, that uh, that has come to produce that particular product. I got a question about that too, about uh, the foot, you know, the, uh, again, mainstream shit. Mm -hmm. but I heard the, the carbon footprint mm -hmm. of the, like the full manufacturing to, to energy generation and whatnot of uh, of a windmill. with a windmill, yeah. yeah, with a windmill. I heard that they'll never in their lifetime they would never produce enough energy than it takes to like make them or like the really? the carbon the carbon footprint of like getting the cement or whatever they they make it out of. So uh, do, do we, you know what I mean? Just throw no, all like, of our YouTube knowledge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you could say debunk everything. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that uh, that really depends on a lot of facets, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think the, the it might be correct the if you picture, make it out of concrete, but uh, the picture in my head was like, yeah, it just takes so much to to actually manufacture them. But I mean, yeah. think of the difference between the ones in in Scotland that are they're making in the ocean compared to the ones on the prairies in Canada mm. or the mountains in Korea. I mean, there's there's geographical challenges to all of them, but mm. the cost sure. but the cost of building them in the ocean in Scotland and, and off the coast of the UK compared to the flatlands in Canada must be drastic. No, I'm not talking different. about. I'm talking about like carbon footprint so like the manufacturing like what it takes to make the cement or but that's what i mean all like imagine boat. how much harder it is to install them in the middle of the ocean well let's say like this yeah oh, to i got you, I get you. I mean, yeah. so you're talking about God, it must be like that. a million times more difficult hmm. let's say like this i don't have the exact numbers and uh, life cycle assessments differ one to another but uh, even if that's true let's take into account hmm. that that's true you need to think about uh, uh how you have shifted your uh, points of emission hmm. okay so at the very least, if uh, this is true, mm. uh, you have reduced uh, uh, localized emission of generating power. So with that, at least you have an option to try and capture the carbon at a point of production of those materials that go into the windmill. Gotcha. And uh, if you have uh, if you have a carbon emission uh, for electricity generation, then well, you still have that option. But the more distributed they are, the more expensive it becomes yeah. to actually manage the carbon. What What are some of the current challenges? in transportation and storage for hydrogen? Well, that's an excellent question. So uh, 
like I, <laughs> like I said before, uh, uh, one of the main uh, benefits of hydrogen is its uh, energy density. Now, what I didn't mention is that's energy density by mass. So one kilogram of hydrogen indeed holds uh, 120 megajoules per per that kilogram, and that's a lot. That's the best you can get in the world. Nate, how many megajoules can you squat? <laughs> <laughs> Two well, bungus. <laughs> no, almost. Yeah, almost three times as much as kilogram of gasoline. That's, yeah, yeah. that's your reference, right? Yeah. Uh, the problem is that uh, if you if you remember your primary and high school chemistry, the hydrogen is the lightest of elements, right? Mm, don't remember that one. H one. Hey, that's the first thing. H two, but yeah. <laughs> Isn't I mean, that the top one? I mean, the molecule. Like, the molecule is H2, but okay. yeah, H has one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Atomic number of <laughs> one, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so be- because of that and because of its elemental properties, it's uh, extremely light. Mm. You know, you know, Hindenburg and uh, Zeppelin's made of hydrogen, yeah. so it's lighter than air. And this makes it uh, extremely difficult to compress. Much, uh, much more so than some other gases that you usually find compressed, like I don't know, CO2, oxygen, hmm. other technical gases, so on and so forth. Uh, also, it makes it really difficult to liquefy. Hydrogen liquefies uh, way below 230, minus 230 Celsius. Hmm. Okay, you guys are Canadian, so obviously no <laughs> Celsius. We call that <laughs> December. <laughs> it liquefies two days before Christmas. <laughs> so uh, that's... Basically, that translates into a lot of energy going into its uh, storage. Mm. So, uh, conventionally, hydrogen is transported by either compressing it into uh, uh, into containers or uh, modifying uh, existing pipelines to withstand pressures of up to, let's say, 50 atmospheres. and <clears throat> Or liquefying it and uh, transporting it like, like you would liquid natural gas, right? Mm. And for all of these processes, there is a lot of energy input because of the particular molecular properties of hydrogen. That's basically the downside, right? But because of that, there is a lot of research into like new and exciting ways to store hydrogen more efficiently and more safely, right? Specifically, our group is looking into the so-called uh, uh, LOHCs, which stands for Liquid Organic Hydrogen Carriers. And uh, that's uh, actually really interesting because uh, if... Uh, uh, if you can utilize that, that means you don't have to change infrastructure which is made for uh, uh, crude oil or which is made for. Uh, hmm. um, so what would be? How would you transport it then? Well, well what's the what's the LOH? What's the LOH? LOHC is basically uh, a chemical that uh, has a lot of chemical bonding sites for nitrogen. So what you do is you charge it. And by charging it, you have a chemical reaction called hydrogenation, where you're adding up molecules of hydrogen to that. Uh, to that compound, and by doing so, you basically have uh, uh, chemically bonded hydrogen to that molecule, and mm. you have uh, a liquid which is uh, safe uh, to handle as any other any other uh, hydrocarbon liquid. Okay. Okay. So uh, when you bring it all. when you bring it to the site that it's when you bring needed. it to the site, then you do the reverse reaction, which is dehydrogenation, and mm. you release the hydrogen from that. I imagine there's like a plant like this that that makes it. You put it in a truck. You ship it to uh, to the gas station where Nate's filling up his thing in the, right. in, in the dehydrogen dehydrogenization <laughs> is is done there on site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, actually there is uh, uh, we are collaborating with uh, one company from Germany. It's called Hydrogenius, which is uh, uh, good branding. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which no, uh, apart from uh, clever puns, they are mm. actually uh, <laughs> leading in uh, uh, LOHC technology. And uh, I got some, let's say, sn- sneak peek uh, in uh, how, how this would look like. Mm. And uh, the numbers really make sense uh, because uh, in the current, uh, you know, that every single current gas station has underground tanks where you fill your oil products. So without changing the infrastructure much with the current volumes, you can fill this with LOHC. And uh, you can fill, uh, okay, depending on the capacity of cars, but anywhere between 500 to 1,000 cars just from this LOHCs, which is... Uh, relatively the uh, same as... Yeah, relatively the same. You would need to add some equipment, like, for example, you need to have this uh, facility for dehydrogenation, mm. and then you need to compress it to about 900 atmospheres, because cars are usually at 700 atmospheres. But still, you don't you don't need huge tanks on site with already pressurized hydrogen. You need mm. medium to small tanks, mm. and the rest is just safely stored in the liquid. That's the that's the main point, point of it. And also, the transportation of it mm. is cheaper, and uh, you can use pipelines. That seems... That was one of the... I I googled lots of things like the the case against uh, using hydrogen and, and lots of them said it was the 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 cost to manufacture the what do you call it, the the gas station or the hydrogen stations or whatnot mm. and I guess if you can retrofit the current ones to no, no, um, you would still need equipment that current uh, hydrogen station have uh, you would still put need a couple uh, couple extra things here and yeah, there maybe for example compressor you would mm. need uh, the, the this uh, buffer tank mm. but. Uh, other than that, uh, and of course the dehydrogenation unit. Hmm. <laughs> when you when you say uh, when you say dehydrogenization unit, the uh, <laughs> is that like a, a million dollar product? What like? Uh, well, I mean, if you make it, it now from scratch, then yes. But hmm. uh, if you over time, hmm. if you start producing them uh, like in a company uh, the size of SK Energy or hmm. or uh, General Electric, then uh, no. Did so the price had come down significantly. One of our main jobs in our group is to take uh, uh, take a new technology, for example, like this, and then apply economies of scale, realistic economies of scale, of course, and mm. many other techno-economic factors to see what would be the actual unit price when uh, uh, when you take into account again economies of scale, global uh, uh, global supply chains, yep. and uh, many other stuff. Cool. So, obviously, yes. To answer your question. If you're gonna make it now to take into account all the cost for R and D, yeah, sure. One unit would cost in yeah. well, one to five to ten million dollars. Oh, sure, okay. but oh, over time and as yeah. they're as they're more produced, it'd come down, right? Yeah. Oh, cool. Just compare it with uh, photovoltaics twenty years ago. Mm. One okay. unit was <laughs> what yeah. hundred times more than today. Yeah. <laughs> cool, all all of this talk about hydrogen. What is your what is your outlook towards the future is—is is it optimistic? Is hydrogen going to be a major player, or a much bigger player in day-to-day life, or does it have a long way to go? Or what do you think? Oh, we live in Olson. You tell me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I uh, think we're lucky to be a part of it, but uh, if it's going to catch on other places, I—that's what you can uh, tell me. I'm not sure how uh, wide will it be applied, but uh, will it have? Uh, Will it have a definite role in decarbonized future? Absolutely, there is there is no way around it. As an energy vector, uh, which uh, is a fancy word for uh, not energy source, but uh, what you use to electricity. Yes, electricity as a perfect uh, and is a perfect definition of an energy vector. You know, that's a, it's a it's a flow of energy, but uh, it's not the primary source. Mm. Primary source are fossil fuels, nuclear, yeah. sun and wind. So it's hydrogen. 
only hydrogen you can store. So yes, it definitely has a niche. We are seeing that in Korea, and uh, it uh, uh, more importantly, uh, I think uh, it provides a real way of uh, exporting your renewable electricity. So think about uh, places like Australia. Think about even places like uh, Africa or uh, today's so-called third world countries. They Okay, many of them are in resource gap, but uh, they actually have a lot of uh, resources uh, in terms of uh, solar and wind potential, which by utilizing hydrogen and technologies like LOHC can mm. be exported to places with high hydrogen demand like Korea. Actually, many of the studies we do mm. consider country like Indonesia or country like Australia or Saudi Arabia, and we do uh, multi-factor analysis in terms of uh, their economies, in terms of their distance, utilizing LOHC, you know, where will be the most uh, viable to import green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So the current oil countries, you know, in the future will be, like you said, the places in Africa and whatnot that can Saudi Arabia is already in heavily investing into their hydrogen capabilities. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I mean, okay, every refinery has uh, their hydrogen production already, mm -hmm. but... Uh, uh, Countries like Korea will not import uh, or import uh, much uh, stricter non-green hydrogen. So mm. okay, okay. Uh, smart countries are planning for that. Mm. And uh, okay, if you want to export hydrogen, it has to be green because these guys will buy it at, at a better price. Cool. Let's change directions a little bit here. Mm -hmm. and, and something maybe that we're all a little bit more knowledgeable or familiar with, um, the plastics part of it. And I know you're, when you were telling me about your company and stuff and managing and I, I remember asking you like there's so many YouTube videos of all these different small startup companies that can take plastics and garbage and just turn it into fuel. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about waste plastic management and, and the upcycling of it. All right, sure. Uh, okay, that's uh, also a topic uh, which we can talk along about but uh, let's start with this. So uh, first of all plastics are by all accounts, uh, they're great materials, mechanically, in their versatility, and they're pretty much everywhere. So in terms of their utility, they are perfect. And we all know what the problem with them is. It's uh, really difficult to, A, uh, recycle them, no matter what uh, uh, no matter what the companies are trying to tell you. <laughs> it is difficult to recycle them, or at the very least expensive. <laughs> and uh, secondly, they uh, take a very long time, up to 1,000 and more years, to degrade the... Uh, uh, in the environment. So there was a, a very famous, uh, I think, a marketing strategy in US. It's always US, uh, like recycle your plastics, recycle your trash. Mm. And uh, think about it, like if you're a general consumer, you take uh, cautiously your aluminum, your plastics, you put it in the, uh, the different bins, in and, a different yeah. bin with that uh, recycling symbol, which is also a marketing hoax, by the way. That's <laughs> that's, that's not I a thing. I was going to say, clarify that for us. Like, man, I remember the blue boxes coming out in Minnesota. Might have been like the early 90s and going, wow, they actually got that. Like they talked about it for years and years. And now America has it. You put this blue box out and you put your and they recycle it. And mm -hmm. people wash them out and take the labels off. And then you see all these videos saying 90 percent of that's not recycled. Yep. <laughs> OK, so here's a here's a here's a question for everybody. So where do where do the plastics go if they aren't recycled? You know, but we separate them. So where do they go? China. Yeah, yeah, they they, they send it out. To, they just yes. not anymore. They sell their garbage. They yeah. send them back. <laughs> there was an economics of plastic uh, video. 
and the thing is like countries import a lot of stuff from china and so they have like these massive containers going to us and other yeah, countries going back empty yeah they go back empty so yeah. instead of that they decide to fill it up with garbage and then that's true they, yeah. yeah majority of the world recycling i'm i'm doing quotation marks yeah. but of course you cannot see it but <laughs> majority of the world's recycling up to exactly 2017 uh was going to china and uh, what do they do they just burn it no 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 i mean yes 70% of the world's garbage was going to china no more plastic more more <laughs> shit like, uh, the cost of sorting them in us by labor yeah. is too high yeah so people like but it's amazing just sorting it yeah. there it's yeah. just amazing to think of that much garbage arriving there and what they do with it That's not garbage. That's just secondary materials. Right. Mm. It can be processed into. But I mean, it's coming from all over the world. Yes, it does. And uh, after 2017, there was uh, there was even uh, you know impacts uh, on that studied in the top journals like Nature. You know, 2017 was the Chinese action called I don't know Free Translation National Sword or something, where essentially they said okay to im- to import this into China now it's it costs a dollar now it costs hundred dollars so. They basically crushed the entire recycling industry yeah. in the world, and by recycling industry, I mean just exporting to China, yeah. <laughs> because, like, uh, yeah, yeah so like you said, the cost of labor is now much higher. Yeah. But I mean, the, no, the also, silver. Also, people were having like really bad yeah health effects. I mean, yeah. obviously, sure. In uh, India is not a lot different. I don't mean in terms of importing, uh, but. I remember in Calcutta, in Calcutta on the street, <laughs> it was like the guys go around and collect all the garbage. And they just make a pile in the middle of the street, like this street's closed off, and they just make a huge mountain of garbage in the middle of the street. And in the morning, they just burn it. <laughs> and I was like, "Holy shit, man! This is What, really yeah, ask, yeah, a lot of places, yeah." And and then and, and then in in Delhi or whatever, it would be the same. You smell they, this rubber <laughs> thing. Another beer throughout the. <laughs> Bring your system there. Um, with Carbon value coming soon. Um, no, but in 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 Delhi and some of the other cities in Pudi and a couple other ones, they would make that mountain, and then guys would sit there and shovel it into a dump truck. And I was like, oh my god! They spend the whole day shoveling the city's garbage into a dump truck. And, and in Calcutta, it was just light the mountain on fire every morning. And I was like, holy! I just lost like six years of my life <laughs> staying at the Salvation Army. Outside, there, there, there is like hills of landfills of garbage. Yeah. It's like almost ten stories high, like it's and crowds of people picking the bags out. Yeah. So yeah. and the plastics out. So China, China putting the stop on the import of their uh, yeah. of plastics. And uh, does that they, bolster? As they should. And does uh, that bolster innovation in in the first world countries to do something with it? Or yeah. They, now they have to. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep uh, adding to that. Yeah. Uh, the, Pacific garbage patch. Yeah. The, the problem is uh, <laughs> the technology of that is uh, I don't know. Uh, I would say. Okay, the plastics boom was seventies and onwards. So, at the very least, thirty years late mm. at minimum. Development of this technology is late. Now, the majority of plastics, uh, if they can, they go to places like uh, Philippines, uh, mm. Indonesia. But yeah, even, what are they doing with them? The same as China, but yeah. uh, even they are overflowing. So, so, so now what can, what can we do with them? So now, mm. like quickly, people are trying to figure out what to do. It. I mean, it's not like there aren't. Uh, Technological ways to do something with plastics. There are, but uh, uh, people are finding more and more that uh, they are either really technologically challenging or they are really expensive, or a combination of both. Now, the reason, yes, I 
again, my YouTube <laughs> PhD on YouTube is coming in here. Um, I watched one that was two types of plastic. Mm-hmm. And all these companies, the soda companies, all, all these companies are using the shit plastic. That's like two levels below what is actually recyclable. And if the government's imposed uh, mandatory restrictions on these companies that they had to make a certain grade of plastic mm-hmm. that would be very easily recyclable and make it valuable, just like what happened with aluminum 30, 40 years ago. There used to be aluminum waste all over. They increased the value of it or, or the quality of it. And then people were picking up cans and recycling cans everywhere because they were worth 10 cents a can. We did it my whole childhood collecting cans. And they said if they would just increase the quality of plastic, which would cost the companies like Coca-Cola, I think it's like less than one cent per bottle. I think it's a very thin line between actual material value and government subsidy. They could raise the quality of the plastic so that it would be valuable that people wouldn't want to throw it out because you could you could put that, what's it called, the deposit on it where you would bring it back and get your five cents or ten cents back for the bottle. Yeah, we have a wonderful uh, program in Croatia where uh, government has implemented that for every PET bottle, just PET bottle, not any other kind of plastic yeah. uh, material, uh, you, can, uh, you can get... Uh, like our version of 50 cents uh, reclamation per bottle. And, and I think they have some here where you can get like a free subway ticket or something, yeah. right? You go put six bottles in, push the button, you get a subway ticket or something. Yeah, but think about it. Uh, just PET plastics and just PET plastics from Croatia. What does it tell you? That tells you that there is no there is no economic process that uh, takes advantage of this collection because if right. there were, people would just... And they did. They brought plastics from neighboring countries like... Yeah. Great. I mean, here's here's twenty tons of PET bottles, mm. and then people say, no, no, it has to be from Croatia. Yeah. Anyway, another example of stupid government policy, right? Because no foresight. Well, no, not just no foresight. You know, you can't just make a policy like that if there is no real, like, natural economic incentive uh, for any process to do something with it. Mm. You know, this was just, uh, let's say, uh, a measure to give the lowest and the most uh, vulnerable people of society a way to. Uh, to have v- very little money. money. Yeah, yeah. Cardboard in Korea. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Cardboard in Korea. It's valuable enough that the old people that have the $150 a month pension will walk around all night in the freezing cold collecting the cardboard. That's why I said it's a very thin line between, you know, economic realities and just uh, right. wishful thinking of, you know, governments. <laughs> How well does the garbage collection system work here in Korea? We sort it out in like seven, eight bins, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but compared compared to Canada, like when I was at home, and my wife's like, "What do I do with this mm. in the garbage? What are this in the garbage? In the garbage?" She's like, but you don't, you don't separate anything. The blue bin sorts everything out. Like we, yeah. <laughs> but, but <laughs> you go to sleep, you just wake up, that shit's all gone. But she couldn't believe that we have like, like that the food waste goes in the regular garbage, like in Korea, like, the food, yeah. Oh, we had a composter in my house. Well, you you that's can, not but that's not it. It's not a. <laughs> even we used to have it. It's not a government yeah. policy or anything mm. to have. But here, you have to throw your food garbage in the food garbage. Yes. And I think it's an it's amazing that our apartment complex pays a company to come and get that. It's like getting free money. They come and pick that up. No, no, like, they they pay to get that shit. Same with the, the we plastics. have a contract to pay them, and we get fined if we don't follow the. If if we have plastic or fruit stickers in the food garbage, well, yeah, yeah, we yeah, get yeah, fined. You, if we have this, we get fined. fined. But we have a contract with them <laughs> to pick it up. It's not they're they're not paying us to get it. Ah, it's 
They should be. That's what it, that's what it should be. It should be you know supply and demand where companies are paying the apartments. Hey, I want to come get your garbage. Mm-hmm. You guys got lots. I want to come get it because it's cattle feed or pig feed or whatever they want to use it for. Huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, just about instead of processing the all the plastics back into into a fuel or whatnot. I've seen. I don't know what country it's in. Again, YouTube. My I got my <laughs> my uh, MD and YouTube there, but um, is it? MDY, the the uh, anyways people using the plastic like maybe like semi processing it mm-hmm. and making it into building materials. No, absolutely. Look, uh, uh, there is a let's say hierarchy of value in mm. terms of uh, utilizing secondary materials. Mm. If you can uh, take some plastic, it's, it's quality enough to re-extrude it mm. or uh, basically reform it yeah, into yeah. new plastic product. Absolutely, you should do that mm. because that that gives the highest value. Or if you can mechanically, uh, mechanically uh, reduce in size and uh, mix to do some building material, absolutely. The next uh, best thing to do is what uh, our company is doing is uh, pyrolysis. I mm. talked about it yeah. before, and uh, absolutely, the lowest uh, the lowest level is combustion, yeah. which uh, there are uh, companies in Korea that do that. Not just plastics, but municipal solid waste. Yeah. If done properly, it uh, it can be quite clean actually mm. and profitable. If because you like, you can capture the stuff that's coming out of the the smokes the smokestacks. No, yeah, can't yeah. you? Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, with my new company, we've been to one. Co- I'm not going to mention them by names, but mm. uh, there is one company here in Ulsan, relatively small. Cancor. Uh, Nate's, Nate's company. And uh, <laughs> there is one in uh, Pohang. They are yeah. both uh, municipal waste incinerators. Mm. You would not uh, say it from outside. Very clean, very shiny. Uh, the smoke uh, is uh, transparent and white. If, it, if there is if there is vapor, you don't smell anything. Huh. So the processes are, you know, perfectly by, by the highest standards, you know. Mm. And they are usually in the middle of uh, industrial zone, and uh, they produce medium to low pressure steam, mm. and they sell it directly to to companies, which mm. are there already oh, yeah mm-hmm. so i think nate was mentioning too that um in terms of using plastic or whatnot it's better to collect it all in one zone or have um, not, not have a centralized say ulsan for example mm-hmm. it wouldn't be just that one um that one processing plant that that feeds all of the different companies you'd need several smaller ones all around sure all around the, one of these companies mm-hmm. is good like combination of things is mm-hmm. uh, always wanted and uh Okay, now let's let's talk about the paralysis process. What you what you asked? No. Okay, just I just want I just want to go back one sec. Sure. Another example. He was talking about the building blocks from plastic turned mm-hmm. into building blocks in Indonesia or somewhere. Another one was the roads. They turn them into plastic oh, yeah. pellets mm. and they make the roads, and they're found out to be like two hundred times last two hundred times longer than typical asphalt, and they're a hundred percent more durable. And but anyways, the the statistics yep. on them are f- amazing. Um, so in those ones, that, that, that's a fantastic use of it. Yeah, But I, I was just going to ask, all this, like in Korea, there's a big push now to take off the colors and the labels on the plastics. Mm-hmm. So now you see like some of the water bottles don't have labels on them. They're yeah. just kind of stamped on. Does that actually make a difference or not? I mean, between the Sprite bottles now or seven, Sprite, Sprite or Cider, <laughs> it shouldn't be green anymore. It should be a white bottle. Okay. Do, do those things make a big difference, or is that just for looks and, and lip service? Like many answers today, it's a, <laughs> it's a faceted answer. Mm. So uh, 
assuming that uh, you'll be taking that product and uh, re-extrude it or uh, mix it with virgin virgin pellets and uh, make new plastic products then yes it makes uh, it makes a difference same with uh, uh, different color glass right in sure you know you, you collect all uh, all glass in one place but uh, in the factory they actually separated by color brown transparent yep. and green uh, so similar with plastics uh, for example the body of the bottle is uh, made from PET the the label is made from uh, PE and uh, the cap is made from HDP so yeah. three different types of polymer in one product Jesus so if the government made a, a policy where it has to be all the same that would simplify the process drastically the recycling process yes yeah the problem is that the uh, products are not designed uh, f uh, from the get-go to be recycled because nobody's thinking that that far ahead <laughs> so doesn't it come yeah I always uh, we like to blame McDonald's or what or like you're sorry people for throwing their throwing their garbage on the ground but isn't isn't it the big companies and stuff that that are buying the products or that are or even even the making them like has to implement the policies so mm. that they can't do that mm. but coca-cola lobbies these governments to say we don't want to check we want to use the cheapest plastic the cheapest labor the cheapest to make the most profits mm. and then that that that's where the way it falls to me it's uh, complicated to the point of impossibility to go into the reasons uh, why is it produced like this uh, why are we in a mess we are we know that we are in a mess uh, uh, is there a a reasonable way to change the minds of governments and big companies i'm probably the not right person to answer that but hmm. uh, that was one that i found interesting i think yeah. it was like six or eight companies make the majority i don't know if it's procter gamble coke whoever mm -hmm. but six or eight of these companies make the majority of the world's plastics yeah i'm not surprised to and if that's true and if they just changed the laws for these for the way that these six or eight companies do it it would simplify the process and, and make the problem a lot easier to solve on the other hand if uh, your uh, i don't know annual uh, annual net profit is in uh, hundreds of billions and uh, then lobbying for every single political party is just the cost of doing business right and what, what and that, right, and that's, yeah. then why would you uh, <laughs> yeah, want to change if it's just yeah. so cheap to do that yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely that's the that's the shitty thing about you know how the how uh how things work in the in the world man true that it's you know monetarily driven i'm gonna get an extra an extra <laughs> yacht you know but everyone's gonna choke on DiCaprio got burnt there a couple of weeks ago <laughs> what was he doing well he's the big u.n climate activist oh yeah he was on the 92 million dollar super yacht suntanning on the porch there and <laughs> all the climate guys are just chewing him up but at least the girls are from yeah. third world country so that kind of balances out you know <laughs> Oh man, that's, that's my favorite. That meme. Like, no, no Oscar award. Yeah, I'll be fine. He's just sitting on a beach by himself. <laughs> okay, oh, your, your company uh, and and the plastic pro pyrolysis. Uh, what about it? How does it work? How can we decentralize this collection and and processing and make it work? All right. So, okay, I uh, I talked about this process in the beginning, so I'm not going to repeat myself. Mm. But uh, just a short recap is. Uh, taking heat uh, without uh, any air and uh, thermally or thermocatalytically converting uh, any kind of it doesn't have to be plastic theoretically it can be anything that's uh, organic or synthetic and it's uh, volatile mm. which means that uh, it will decompose so not metals and not 
minerals, right? Okay, okay. Everything else, technically, it's doable. Yep. But this uh, is particularly for plastics. So you uh, basically thermally liquefy it, and you have some gas, and you have some uh, residue. Uh, we call it char, like uh, biochar or uh, plastic char, mm. which is valuable pr- product in in and of itself. And the gas is also uh, uh, energy source, which very big pyrolysis processes are using to power up the entire process. So, uh, if done, if designed properly, uh, the process can be energy self-sufficient in in let's say a large-scale process. So, in terms of at the very least energy efficiency, this is completely viable. And uh, now the question is, uh, okay, if this process exists and uh, it can be applied to pretty much any type of plastic, mm. even if it's contaminated, okay, why don't we have this uh, plants hand. everywhere, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, I mean, and there are. There are some uh, pilot or industrial plants, Canada, in US, mm. in Germany, but uh, not nearly as enough to solve uh, all the world's plastics. Mm. So, so what gives? Why not? Yeah, well... Our answer, and we think it's the most uh, logical one, is because of the properties of plastics, which is they are uh, very durable but very lightweight material. So, uh, in in the best case scenario, even if you ground them up and uh, compress it to into a bale, there is only so much weight that can fit into one, let's say, cubic meter of it. So, uh, very limited amount of uh, cargo can fit in, like, let's say, your standard shipping container, and uh, even if you have the most efficient process in the world with uh, literally free energy, mm. uh, the cost of shipping, uh, the cost of feeding that process with uh, amounts of plastic yeah, that yeah. you need would uh, eat up the entire okay. economics of it. So that's where that's where it comes in that you need a uh, you need more Stations smaller. All over. Yeah. Yes, in our opinion, uh, uh, we actually have done a, a pilot process, uh, which is uh, one proof proof of concept uh, 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 let's say micro converter container mm. that's that's how we're calling it it's our brand uh, it's it's one within container. within one container it's within a shipping container oh and it's uh, uh, and we imagine it as a so-called uh, cogenerative pyrolysis or cogeneration mm. which means that uh, the, the technology itself is uh, is nothing new it's a uh, it's a biomass boiler mm. Which uh, which are used in places like Canada, U.S., uh, Northern Europe, anywhere you need a very reliable and importantly carbon neutral heating. So you're using uh, natural or industrial biomass like wood chips. Mm. You fill up a silo, and uh, basically when you need heating, you click play, and uh, the process take take care of yeah, take yeah. care of the rest. What we have done is integrated this uh, with uh, like a very controlled and very uh, a hermetically sealed uh, uh, pyrolytic reactor inside the combustion chamber. Okay. So small part of uh, combustion heat is utilized to pyrolyze waste plastics. And we did it the most uh, cheaply and uh, hopefully the most idiot-proof way possible mm. because we are working with combustibles here. In the same way that you, the only job of a consumer is to fill the reactor, close it down, and press play when he wants heating. So, in a way, when there is a heating season, there is a season for relatively cheap or free conversion of plastics into pyrolysis oil mm. now one of those uh, one of those uh, pilots mm. can produce relatively uh, low amounts of oil 
you know, compares to the demands of a refinery or something. Mm. But if you have 20 to 50 to 100 of them yeah. in various places, you have two things. You have uh, the yield of a big, uh, uh, big production facility, yeah. but you also have uh, like many, it? many degrees of freedom where you can optimize your uh, delivery routes. Yeah. Because in a big city or urban area, plastic sources are everywhere. Yeah. So your conversion has to be everywhere if it's a very wide area. So to put it to put it very simply, instead of using uh, twenty to a thousand trucks a year to haul very light material to one place, mm. you use distributed production, and then in the end of the heating season, you use one or two cisterns to haul very energy dense material yep. to one place, but with two trucks or five. So that during the heating season, yeah, nice. you mentioned before, they could heat their house or heat the greenhouse or yeah. or whatever they needed. The important thing is that people are. Confusing constantly. I don't know why people always think, "Oh, you're burning the plastics." No, we aren't burning the plastics. Yeah. We, we are burning wood as uh, everybody else, which has wood chip boilers, are doing. Mm. But we are just pyrolyzing plastics at the same time, storing it mm. in the end of the season. Okay, how much uh, liters of oil have you produced? Well, I don't know, hundred. Okay, great. There's a twenty percent on your next silo of wood chips or oh, whatever. So it's kind of uberization of. Uh, yeah. Of plastic management, and we have tested this. Uber at, is that in the dictionary? Uberization? No, I just made it up. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a doctor, right? Uberization. I, I, I I like it. But, that, that, <laughs> but that's going to be in the dictionary. So you heard uberization. it here first. I like it. You heard it here first. <laughs> One of our previous guests invented uh, invented the word normcore. Instead, okay. instead of hardcore, he got he got, yeah man he, he's recognized for oh, in, 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 in the dictionary. Okay, wow. okay question. I'm I was sure somebody else made yeah. I was looking up uh, the paralysis different kind of plants, and mm -hmm. they mentioned the intermittent plants, thirty five to seventy five thousand dollars to make one. I'm not saying how big or small. Mm. You said yours fit in a container, and and yeah, that's pretty ideal. Um, the continuous plants were three hundred to six hundred thousand to to manufacture, to, to build? Mm, sorry, sorry, what? 300 to $600,000 for a continuous plant. Oh, no, no, no. That is uh, annualized cost, assuming 20 years, uh, 20 years life uh, lifetime. Okay. Yeah. Compared to an inter intermittent one, which would be 30, 30 to 70, say. A big, okay. Medium-sized plant for centralized paralysis, oh. let's say five tons a year, would be anywhere between two to $5 million. Wow. It's a big process. I yeah. mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, there's a lot of machinery, you know, yeah. but provided that you have uh, that much plastic, that much plastic, and let's say uh, enough government subsidies, sure, you can make it work. Right. Only our process doesn't assume government subsidies. That, that, that's the main thing, <laughs> like in real so, economics. Yeah. This article said that they use 87% more energy than they can produce. Bullshit. You need to run this by me again. 87% more energy are they using than they can produce. Yes. Yeah. It, it, so they just said they weren't feasible because it costs them 87% more energy than what they can produce. The the big plant. Yeah. These The intermittent or the continuous plants that would... Where is that from? Bullshit.com. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, which country, yeah. which source? I, I, I don't know. It was one of the articles I was reading. Okay. I mean, look... Uh, it just... So uh, my, my question then is... how. Your your container plant or mini plant or whatever mini plant. Mm -hmm. What is the ratio of how how much or my container uh, always produces this uh, pretty much freely because the reason is uh, he's taking the heat from the we are not 
consuming energy to pyrolyze plastics. That's right. a secondary process. We are consuming energy to heat the space. That's why... So it's directly... Yeah. So okay. we're using small amounts of... So basically, you know, when you think about it, it's free. Or at the very least, it's a fraction of what you're using to heat up so, a building or so a production this, hall. this would apply to the larger plants where you have to bring in more and... No, this would apply where you utilize energy specifically. This is your main process. This is your main product. Right. This is our secondary process. Okay. You know, you the user can or may or may not do that. You know, he still needs to heat up. Right. The only downside is that uh, to do it economically, you you are only limited to heat, heating season. Whereas this plant, uh, centralized, operates constantly. Right. But for that, you need constant uh, influx of raw material, and uh, your primary energy consumption is just for that. Right. Now, I don't know where you got this, but uh, the process that we compared it with is uh, is a plant in uh, in Germany it's from Pyram AG company and they're using specifically old tires so uh, from that yield you get uh, about uh, 45 to 50% liquid and uh, i think uh, 35 gas and the rest is char and from that gas they can generate enough electricity in uh, gas generators to heat up the pyrolysis reactor. Hmm. So the rest is... So I've seen pictures of that operating, so, uh, you know, it's not wishful thinking. They're right. actually doing it. Yeah. And with tires, I guess it makes sense because they are, you know, tires are heavy. They are, yeah. they have the certain density. Yeah. yeah. But put anything else in that besides tires and the economics quickly right <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. wild so so is you told me that your comp or not your company, you told me you've seen models like yours in uh eastern europe is that right i think you mentioned this models isn't new i think you said this wasn't new technology it already exists oh no 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 but I mean, your uh, company is going to focus on korea because no no no, no 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 the parts of this technology exists okay. people have made uh, biomass boilers before people have made pyrolysis before mm -hmm. to the best of my knowledge nobody has combined the two and nobody has conceived of this uh, seasonal decentralized business model for pyrolysis okay so that's our primary innovation now you know people innovate things every day maybe somebody has uh, figured out the same but uh, i have not found uh, anything uh, in available literature so is the goal to market this or the target market only in Korea or the goal is to market this globally to, or as far as I can see we have two uh, two assets here we have actual system that's proven in operation and we have know-how of the pyrolytic process on large enough scale to make it uh, you know representative not not just in lab you know if you have lab you can do pretty much anything but uh, <laughs> no seriously yeah, but uh, sure. As soon as you scale it to anything, then you can see that uh, uh, life is not fair. <laughs> you know, really, sure. It's like the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so just today, before I before I got to you guys, okay, I'm not going to mention the company, but I had a really interesting meeting with uh, a representative from uh, a very big cruise cruise company. They and this this company produces cruisers and integrates new technologies into them, and they're actually really interested to integrating pyrolysis system, obviously not on biomass, but uh, in their waste incinerators right. to put our pyrolysis reactors there and... Uh, on the ships? On the ships, yeah. Oh. Because the cruise ships have 
Oh, they aren't they one of the worst polluters in the world? No, 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 no. They have their. I mean, obviously, obviously depends which ones, but mm. uh, uh, the ones that I've seen, like uh, out of Singapore or out of uh, some, uh, let's say, Nordic countries, mm. uh, they have on board uh, recycling facilities, anywhere from wastewater treatment, uh, from incinerators mm. with scrubbers. This, it's amazing. Oh wow! It's, yeah. yeah, it's uh, very compact. Is that very mean, interesting? In Florida, in Florida and in the Gulf, they just dump it into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> this is very interesting niche application because think about it. If you have waste incinerator and you can first of all pyrolyze all your plastics, you sure. you uh, save on space and you can. These are robust enough motors that you can directly mix this with your fuel and just run on that. Oh, wow. yeah. How how much just ballpark would one of these? What what do you call it? A mini. What are yours called? The container ones, mini pyrolysis, micro converter. We call it. Okay, how much would one of these things go for? Ballpark. Ballpark, uh, twenty-five to thirty-five thousand euro. Uh, sorry, twenty-five to thirty-five. Yeah, thousand euros. That's nothing for a cruise ship. No, 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 no. Uh, are you talking about uh, this cruise ship application or the well, one? Both. But you, the one you, we have. Could you take the one you have and implement it on a cruise ship? Uh, the priority part, yes, but the cogeneration uh, with biomass, oh, no, of course no, not, right. because this is a cruise ship. Sure. So this would have to be redesigned uh, from the almost from the ground up. Okay. But it's a very interesting application that yeah. uh, I think we are capable of uh, making, because this one it's you know for stationary sure. heat generation, and it's not just not applicable for this, but the priority part is. Cool. So the other ones. Uh, if you were just to wonder how my in-laws have a couple farms and stuff. Mm-hmm. So my father-in-law could buy one of these mm-hmm. units, put it on his, on his land and all the neighbors and everyone in the, in the village would bring their plastics to him. Yeah, pretty much. And he could produce energy to heat his place and okay. whatever's Good. excess he could sell. Obviously, later. obviously depending on the local government, uh, not government, uh, environment regulations. Right. In purely in terms of uh, energy content and uh, quality, this pyrolytic coil, if processed properly, can be directly used in stuff like tractors, ship engines. I'm talking about heavy, robust motors. You know, mm. you can't put it in a diesel car and expect it not to break. Mm. Especially the you know the fine uh, atomizers. You know, okay. they would uh, they would clog. But uh, he's Giongi there would eat that <laughs> shit up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, farms are, for example, perfect application. They so have... this sounds like something that the government should be subsidizing tomorrow. Yes, I agree. So <laughs> even if even if you can't use pyrolysis soil in any engines because of uh, environmental regulations, you would still have a, a, you know, a crown company, again, like sure. Uber, you know, yeah, yeah. these are all your cooperants. Yeah. And, okay, how much oil did you produce? All right. You have subsidy on your next and biomass. Uh, and they would pick that up. If it couldn't be used, they would pick that up and bring it back to a centralized place or a place no, that could I use would, it. I, would, uh, I, as a crown company, yeah, would yeah. go to every single of my producers mm. using one trunk instead of 100. Okay, okay. How much you have? 100 liter? Fine. You? Five. Okay, fine. Yeah. Or it's subcontracted or they bring it. Yeah. We, we harvest sure. the rice and we bring, it's got to be 1.5 tons. We bring right to Nonghyap. And Nonghyup shells it, bags it, and sells it. Sure, if they want to bring and it. If yeah. you go to Nonghyup Martin and buy rice, it might be from my father-in-law's farm. 
And that's all the guys in the neighborhood bring their rice to Nomeo because we, we produce too much. We can't we can't consume that much. So we bring it directly. We get the like the, a co-op. The one, yeah, but that's Nomeo. That is the Nomeo. biggest. Yeah. It's the biggest yeah, yeah, yeah. co-op in the country, and it, that's what I mean. Like it's fabulous already. They already understand that that process already works really well here. So this would this would like seamlessly fit right into how Nomeo already operates. And they have like the vegetable zone in the in the store there, yeah. where you can bring your sweet potatoes, you bring yeah, your yeah, lettuce, yeah. and it says this is produced by local forest. This is produced by yeah. Sorab. This is, and and they already have that for guys who produce too much. That's kind of our idea for reduction of waste. And you know, I'm not trying to discourage the utilization of uh, big efficient processes where it is economically viable. Right. But this that's not everywhere. Yes, that's yeah. not everywhere. Well, yeah. I, I'm going to be fully honest. I I can cry on the farm. I mean, there's so many plastic bags from the fertilizer and, and this yes, and the waste plastic that we, we lay down to, to put the seeds in to cover the ground. And I'm like... Remember that time what we built a fire that? pit? What? What happens to those black bags? My father burns it. Nice. <laughs> he waits till mom's not there and he burns it. We built... No, I so, so I've tried to like... When I bring the girls out there, we... I say, today, we're what are we doing? We're just cleaning. What do you mean? They don't have to clean the... There's shit everywhere. There's plastic, and they tie all the the pepper plants. Every one of them is tied, and there's a million kinds of, of polys out there on from all different sources and, and, and products. Exactly. But, man, if he had that, like right now, probably by the driveway, there's probably like 50 or 60 bags from this year that haven't been burned because me and mom pick them up. Mm. But if we don't, <laughs> and dad's in charge of cleanup, they just end up up in flames. One day when the the mountain fire risk is low and no one's watching, so <laughs> I, I mean, but yeah, like I mean, that would totally totally work. And he waits until the end of the year, and someone comes by and picks up the forty bags or fifty bags of plastic shit that we have left after a season. So is, is the is the better approach, like thinking of an alternate way to to not use the plastic, or I guess in the meantime we have to. Learn how to. But if this is an efficient process to do it, then you don't. In the meantime, we have to do something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all for the plastic. Use plastic. We would have to like radically change our lifestyles. Yeah, imagine the plastic is hard to replace. It's It's too durable. It's too. There's too many ways. It's too useful. You can't until graphene is uh, is mass producible. You can't you can't change this stuff, man. So, okay, so fifty years at least, all right. Yeah. So, so you, but it's it's the ideal material. It's flexible. It's durable. It's it's everything you want in a material. So it's impossible. I guess to get you've had a guest who is big on graphene, right? Who's big on graphene? Yeah. Do you do you have a guest who's big on graphene? Oh, do, have we? No, yeah. not yet. Yeah. Oh, okay. But when I was at Unist, it was all about graphene. The whole thing was graphene, graphene, graphene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a holy grail, and but. It, uh, <laughs> But not yet. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't raise your hopes. Yeah, it's been thirty years. Yeah, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. But nobody's doing it. So <laughs> as as a um, as a business owner, what what steps do you take to to pitch this to the government? Do you just do you show up or do you wait for them to discover you? <laughs> Hello, I'm Boris. Uh, well, <laughs> this guy means business. Well, business owner is a bit uh, uh, is a bit a lot. I mean, I am the I am the official co-founder, but uh, I I don't have any financial stake as of yet mm. because it's not an option. But as soon as uh, uh, because uh, this company is basically uh, uh, startup uh, under the umbrella of uh, so-called uh, by Angel Partners, so uh, it's essentially uh, venture capital for technology development. Mm. So uh, being the chief uh, uh, R and D manager there, I'm responsible for 
any output. Mm. So in that way, I'm the co-founder in terms of without me, that wouldn't exist. No, oh, okay. And if, Good position. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if, uh, if we uh, turn a reasonable product and mm. our profit in a reasonable amount of time, then, mm. uh, you know, obviously the shares will change as well. Mm. But, uh, but I mean, let, let's say yeah. I, uh, I uh, covered uh, the output and the direction we are going uh, where there is the, mo the most sustainable value. Mm. And uh, our CEO, who is also in the Sumo Corporation, and uh, my professor, they uh, uh, they get uh, opportunities from Korea, mm. and all of us get opportunities from abroad. Mm. Obviously, they are way more uh, acquainted with the Korean political and uh, mm, academic sure. system. Yeah. Are so, there any functioning models in Korea right now? Sorry. Do you have any functioning units in Korea right now? Uh, the only uh, the only functioning model now is in Croatia, and uh, that's from you guys. Well, yeah, basically, uh, uh, this is from the, you remember from the beginning of this interview, this is what I have been developing uh, since okay. 2012, yeah. first hands-on and then uh, mm. uh -huh. after years, and then now that I'm in, in Korea, that company has saw fit to uh, put it as a part of the offering of this Korean company because we can expand our uh, potential customer base. Yeah. Awesome. Very nice. It seems like... Uh, the success of this project will be massively dependent on government's part, right? Mm, yes. If they decide like, okay, we are going to implement thousand units across Ulsan, then that... Not necessarily. Uh, the only thing... Or we subsidize. Or the on, no, no, no. The only uh, thing we need from government is uh, like the lack of red tape. I'm confident that... Mm. Uh, if people are willing to buy it... I was going to say, at $30,000... We, at 30, we can make it work without yeah. any subsidies. Mm. I I have the numbers behind it at least in a as objective theoretical study as I could as I could make it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, what what do you provided think? that uh, there is no uh, uh, you know fake environmental concerns which would be basically uh, interest of somebody like SK or something. Right. Uh, this could work. I want somebody like SK in Korea or some other refinery else to see us as partners, not as competitors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If uh, running at max capacity, mm -hmm. what what do you think are the numbers you've crunched? What how much could you turn in a in a season or a year? <clears throat> What's the potential? Well, I mean, how how long to pay off your investment? Okay, so uh, if my father-in-law bought one at thirty-five thousand dollars, is it five years, ten years to to get the return on investment, or how long? Well, okay, let's see. Uh, assuming uh, you have a an unlimited amount of garbage, or you? No, 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 not that's that. It. Max capacity, yeah. whatever the maximum no, no, no. capacity uh, is. Uh, you have to remember that this system is predominantly for heating, heating season, yeah. and uh, very, very cheap heating yeah. for that. So, the main, the main return on investment comes from the difference in current heating, which in Korea is usually either natural gas or yeah. uh, some, uh, even electricity. So, provided that you have uh, a greenhouse or uh, production hall or a big uh, enclosed space, let's say 500 to 1,000 and more uh, square meters, mm -hmm. and you switch from natural gas to this type of biomass, your ROE is at best uh, three years, at, at the very worst, four. Oh my God. So sure, you're incredible. 100% you're incredible. I mean, and these are the numbers for... Uh, 
for Europe. In Korea, I didn't crunch the numbers, but given the prices of natural gas here, <laughs> that could be even less, I'm, even quicker. Yeah the, yeah, the only thing I'm not sure are the are the prices of uh, wood chip uh, same as uh, you know global global mm. average. Yeah, but, but given given that they are if they are similar, then yes, these are ROIs are def- definite. Even if not lower, so that's why the government subsidies would be a bonus, but not not a necessity by any means. Believe me, for that no, big for that no. big spaces, uh, the difference in uh, price is in hundreds of thousands. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like wow. My question regarding that was like you have to be very close with like the political situation or like impact of big companies like SK and stuff. So how does like a emerging company deal with this pressure or threat or whatever? <sighs> In Korea, mm, because I'm sure. I guess uh, I guess we will see <laughs> in the span of the next year. But uh, I am. Uh, That's why they're partnered with the big guys. I am carefully confident because uh, we are under the umbrella of uh, of a table. So uh, <laughs> it's in their interest for us to. Uh, what university did you go to? <laughs> all day. Me too. Five <laughs> twenty container microprocessors. Yeah. So obviously, you know we. Uh, uh, we need to uh, uh, ship our own product, but uh, at the very least, uh, we are uh, to some extent protected against, uh, let's say, unfair, you know, crushing competition from uh, somebody who just wants to crush, you know, like <laughs> like a monopoly in similar uh, <laughs> in similar area. A big player comes in. So I would say carefully nice. confident. A couple more here before we end. Just a couple general ones. Uh, I just wrote down, what are the worst consumer products for the environment? Often we hear about styrofoam, and styrofoam takes X amount of more years than just a basic plastic to break down. Mm-hmm. Styrofoam food containers, this, all this now, this, what is it called? Coupon, fresh, everybody mm-hmm. delivered. Like, I look at my wife, and I go, come on, they delivered one pack of noodles in this big freaking box? Like, oh, yeah. We just killed like 10 years of the environment for one pack of noodles. I'll run across the street and get it. Is styrofoam the worst consumer product for the environment, or what? Or, or what do they do with the styrofoam? Is it? Does it feed into this kind of system? Or wow, that's a really specific question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, that's one that we hear about often. Is styrofoam is the worst one because it, it just doesn't break down, and the pellets end up in the ocean, and and that's kind of the worst of the worst of these. Is I it, is I it two no? avocados today on a piece of plastic, like on a piece of styrofoam that was wrapped in plastic. Just think about the. The energy it took to like grow the avocado and ship it here, yep. and the, oh god, it's awful. Well, it's not nice that you put this Deliciously because awful. Uh, the absolute <laughs> first plastic that we tested in this system was polystyrene, uh, but polystyrene plastic and styrofoam is just expanded polystyrene, mm. so basically the same polymer, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a prime example of uh, why it's very difficult to ship waste plastics from place A to place B economically and. And if it's a you know a very long distance, so in terms of uh, harmfulness, uh, look, it's a uh, I guess I think this is kind of my common common answer. It's a complicated question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, sorry, it's a complicated answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, I would say it's definitely more harmful in terms of uh, waste management supply chain than other plastics, specifically because it's light and because uh, it's uh, you know it. Depending on the type of polystyrene, it tends to um, fragment, and then the wind and currents can take it pretty much anywhere. And we all know where it where it ends up. Sure. 
is the styrofoam right now, all those containers that we get, are they recycled or what do they do with those right now? I would, uh, for Korea, I would guess that majority of them goes into incinerator. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But are they paralyzable? Absolutely. So in, in that system that you have, no problem? Yes. The mm-hmm. The only thing that I would see is that you need to physically compress as much as you can. Right. Just because... Uh, yeah, you know, the very mechanical properties of styrofoam is that it's a good insulator, you know, right. and because of that, it's light. Yeah. Being in the education system here in Korea, we get a, a peek behind the curtain, mm-hmm. and it and it's it, it soured the what we thought education was, right? <laughs> um, having so much knowledge in your field, what does the world look like through your eyes? Highway to hell. Or stairway to heaven. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's definitely not a "Don't Look Up" scenario. You know the the latest movie. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> you can give us an indirect kind of college answer. It's a, <laughs> like uh, it's uncomfortably close. Okay, uh, okay, this is difficult to explain without uh, graphics. But uh, in the latest climate accord, they by day I mean uh, the leading countries of the world have agreed to some goals by. Help me. Uh, is that Paris? Was it 2030? 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, Paris is 2030. 2030, okay, okay, yeah. 2050. Sorry, 2050, right? Some global goals by 2050. And there are different... Uh, I'm talking about CO2 yeah. emissions. Mm. So there are different routes how to achieve that. And of course, everybody has opted for the worst possible route. Okay, so uh, <laughs> in the first uh, 80% of the time, uh, we don't change anything. And then... Somehow, magically, in the last five years, oh, we reduced by, I don't know, That's a, some yeah. huge percentage. So, uh, you know, looking at it graphically, it would look like uh, uh, convex. Yeah. And uh, instead of, it should be the opposite, right? Yeah. Concave. So, just looking at that and uh, what everybody has agreed, uh, I think we are already way past uh, 1.5 degrees, which uh, is already way past what uh, what we think it's safe now and this is without india china and brazil on board now is this you Ar- guys aren't even included in any yeah, of these yeah, course yeah, yeah, yeah. now is this armageddon no you guys like he's fucking burning plastic <laughs> in the middle of the- <laughs> he went home for a vacation and burned mounds of plastic come on what are you yeah. complaining your father-in-law also burns yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes he's a big contributor <laughs> so okay but realistically is, is it armageddon probably not people will still live uh you know the planet Earth doesn't really care about us, mm. so uh, it's uh, it will be more and more difficult, more and more expensive. Uh, I don't know if I'm. Everybody good. needs a carbon future. I'm not good enough to talk about ge- geopolitics, but uh, what's been happening in uh, U.S. and Europe in terms of we call it migrant crisis, but I just call it you know people wanting to live not normally. Um, and not just yeah. globalization, because when you think yeah. about it, you know uh, the entire world is a I guess resource pyramid scheme, right? So, <laughs> just because you are in a bad, bad part of the lottery, you know, why should you yeah. not leave at the very least as the worst person in EU or Canada sure. or mm. right? Yeah. From that, from that point of view, I understand. Of course, on the other point of view, you obviously physically cannot manage all those people in one place, right? Mm. So, uh, connecting that to climate change, that would definitely accelerate already existing migrations things like corona will become the norm oh and so many people yes so many. Uh, uh, rapid uh, uh, and violent uh, 
Whether again that part's uh, already here. Yeah. The last two or three years has been atrocious for the amount of craziness that's gone on. Sure, from because, volcano, volcanic eruptions to. But people are like frogs in, uh, in you know, slowly heating a container. You know, you don't, don't realize it until it's uh, really hot, and then you die. Because, uh, again, I, I I tell this all my students. Uh, you you know, whatever you do, you can't escape thermodynamics in the end. You know, mm. and. Uh, Simply put, uh, you know, people have different opinions what will happen with global warming. But simply put, it will not be much warmer or much colder, but it will be uh, faster warmer and faster colder mm. because you're just putting more energy into the same system. So yeah. you're speeding everything up. Jeez. Wild. So, highway to hell. It's faster. <laughs> we're, we're, on the, we're on the hyperloop to hell. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, not really, but... Uh, at the current at the current speed uh, of uh, trying to clean things up both in the air and in the soil it's not nearly fast enough even with uh, all the resources uh, put into uh, academic research it's all fu- fine and well on paper but uh, so actual to sum up Elon Musk is going to win on Mars <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have absolutely no problem of him going on Mars today. <laughs> no, any any advice for aspiring people in your field? For aspiring people in my field. Any any lesson hard lessons you've learned? Any anything you could tell them to guide them in a in a better, different way? Or follow me or chemical engineering is is a big part of the future or, or what? What would you say to the the next generation of people in your field? Mm. It's uh, similar to the lines of Dr. Sieg, who was here before, or you call her Sheik, I don't know if it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know the proper pronunciation, but uh, if you don't love uh, uh, this, uh, this field, uh, this is not for you. So, uh, certain motivation is expected of uh, everybody to spend uh, days on end, 10, 12 hours, in a lab or at a computer, uh, looking at uh, intricate data, having uh, 50, 100 variables in your head and only you know uh, what affects uh, the rest and then how you're going to communicate it to people. I would, okay, Uh, if you have enough motivation to do that, either uh, any kind of uh, science uh, in terms of uh, energy or... uh, Uh, you know, hardcore STEM sciences, uh, I would say that uh, invest a lot, not just in uh, your basic skills uh, of, uh, you know, your core core subjects and uh, the tools of of work, but invest heavily into your communication skills. Surprisingly, they are... Okay, it's not surprising, but... uh, Especially here. Yeah, you spend a lot of time uh, uh, in textbooks and you spend a lot of time in... uh, in models and in the laboratories, but then in the end, uh, you need to effectively communicate. Like I have tried here, I don't know how effective I was, but <laughs> you need to effectively communicate to somebody not from your area, whether it's a decision maker or whether it's a large audience, and you want to persuade them of something good. And if you failed at that, then unfortunately, majority of your work goes to waste, even mm, though yeah. it makes perfect sense. Mm. Yeah, Oof. it's like a Neil deGrasse Tyson. You you know I, he was one of the first guys to kind of yeah, yeah. scientific communicator. You yeah. need to be, if not effective communicator of your work, which is complex, more and more and more complex as you advance. Uh, 
you at least need to work for somebody who can do it yeah. because otherwise otherwise it's pointless obviously you know what you do needs to have sustenance mm. but without that second part so that would yeah. be my primary advice and that, if, that's if probably something fields, that people learn after the fact yeah i've done all the work yeah. now i gotta present shit yeah, yeah. i don't know how I to talk to, to people do i don't know how to uh, oh my god i just did five years of work and i can't even i don't know how to simplify five years of my work into 10 minutes and make it right. ordinary person to understand it completely wow that's a yeah. huge uh, thing yeah. <laughs> that you need yeah. to <laughs> not even i am expert in that i do reasonably well i suppose but uh Sure, and, yeah. but I mean, I'm, no one teaches is explicitly like exactly. That. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I'm sure that's a, a huge challenge for a lot of people to. So it's yeah. one thing when you can study and put your head down and be by yourself and and do the work, but but then like that's what say, I that's a that's a primary thing. Explain. You need to have well, the personal motivation to go through that. It can be grueling, and it is. You need to love it, but this other part, uh, it's almost impossible to. Avoid. Do anything practical with it, even just getting a grant if you're just an academic, or yeah. basically in the end selling your idea, selling mm-hmm. your product. Yeah. Well, to that, to add on to that, like we used to do the proofreading for a lot of the the academic papers and grants and stuff. Oh. And the writing, was, <laughs> the writing was like, do you really submit this? Where, how, how are you tr- really trying to get a grant with this, or like you got eight spelling mistakes? You're not even using a basic. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. And it was, <laughs> yeah. but 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 like you say, like apparently it's like a big business here. People pay like yes, it's hundreds huge. and thousands huge, of dollars huge, for huge. a paper to get it. Yeah, shit, I'm doing it for free. <laughs> <laughs> but but even even I look at like you know ten years ago, Grammarly didn't exist. But even a basic, a terrible English writer putting your thing in Grammarly would improve it drastically. Yeah. Oh yeah, and make it at least readable. But my word, we used to we used to edit and proofread some of those papers. And go, oh, for the National Nuclear Society, and oh my god, I'm very easy to get along, and uh, I think predominantly my students like the way I, I guess, do science and manage it. But uh, where I really blow a fuse when they give me a text <laughs> and, you, and, I, and I clearly see that they haven't even used the proofreading function of Word. Yeah. Like, no, mm. no, 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 this is impossible. Because you literally see, you know, where yeah, are the mistakes. Yeah, so just freaking right-click. Professor. See the red light? Professor, Hunger Soft doesn't have that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like, use Word. It's 2022. <laughs> Don't use Hunsoft. Oh, yes. man, I see it every day and I go, you sent this, you handed it in and it's got them underlined for you. It's got them underlined for you. You just totally ignored it. Oh, that's funny. We send them. I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to reply. I'm not going to read. Send it again. <laughs> Terrible. But, Anyways, very, very interesting. Dude, I'm, uh, can you fit one of those containers in that spare room over there? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be wild if the whole apartment just came to, your, came to drop your stuff off here? Wouldn't it be wild if every one of these big buildings had one? Yeah. I thought about doing... Uh, very i don't know how you'd get maybe solar i don't know why every building here isn't isn't a garden isn't uh powered with so i mean every window doesn't have a solar panel or every wall isn't plastered with solar panels and it's storing the energy in like some underground batteries that's used to to power the thing or even at like you said at the very least having the structure man costs a lot of money for that yeah that's a lot of money. But okay, so but in maybe new apartments, if, if they just added ten thousand dollars to every apartment, it would be covered. No, or, or yeah, dig dig three uh, three stories deep or whatever, and and do it. I don't know. 
Seems seems I mean, very okay, basic sure, and easy uh, in my mind. Batteries, even mm. lead acid batteries, can really increase the uh, capital investment for your solar mm. solar project. Like seriously, even double. Mm. Oh, yeah. it's storing the storing the energy. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. It doesn't make sense. Uh, if it, okay. all that technology is out there, man, if it was, it would be in some reason. Yeah, not feasible. In some reason, it does. But uh, think about it. Uh, majority of uh, uh, majority of the sun uh, it. Majority of the electricity is uh, consumed in uh, in summer mm. when uh, there is a lot of load on uh, AC AC mm, So you don't you don't really need to store it because you consume it right there and there. Okay, so okay. basically, you just cut your AC spending by huge percentage. Mm. That, okay. That's what you did, which is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Anyways, yeah. Everyone, thanks for listening. <laughs> Boris, thanks for coming in, dude. Well, uh, I I hope to do this again with uh, with more topics and and yeah. Topics. Cheers. It was great. So I hope it uh, wasn't too dispersed. Perfect. No? Well, tie me down and spank my bottom with a wet fish. Please don't forget to check out Doctor English, our sponsor for the podcast. It is your one stop shop for all your English conversational needs. Enjoy learning from the comfort of your own home. Call 010-4591-1496 for a free sample class. Take your English to the next level by visiting their website now at www.doctor-english.com.